and welcome. You're listening to another episode of Cosmic Children. Uh, I'm Kevin. I'm your host for today's episode. We have Nick as our co-host. Hi, guys. And we have a pretty interesting guest, Nomit. We have oh, Mackenzie. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> okay, Mackenzie. So right off the bat, um, what the fuck is a parasitologist? It's in the name. I mean, there's a lot of... So there's lots of different sciences, right? And they all like to give themselves little latinized kind of names like, gotcha. right like botany you would never guess just mm. off the bat is a plant scientist and a myrmecologist you wouldn't guess is an ant scientist it's a what what a myrmecologist myrmecologist a myrmecologist is okay. an ant science a scientist and a parasitologist is exactly what it what it sounds like so we study parasites mm-hmm. because we're very uncreative and whoever was coming <laughs> up with the names okay was just lazy so how would you define what a parasite is so hmm well, so there's, there's a difference between a parasite and what a parasitologist studies. Okay. So a parasite is any organism which derives its living, in some sense, from another organism without giving anything back. Oh, okay. So a, kind of a thief. Yeah. Right? But a parasitologist only studies a very specific small group of these things. Mm. So parasites don't share a common ancestry. They share a common way of life. They don't share a common ancestry. So if you think of like cats, Mm. all share. There was one ancestral cat thing that all cats descend from. And whether you're a tiger or whether you're a house cat, Mm. you all descend from one common ancestor in the mists of time. Mm. Parasites have converged on parasitism independently of ancestry. So you have things like cookie cutter sharks, which are much more related to... They're about. They're kind of a shark about two feet long that will these kind of very sharp serrated teeth and mm. they'll latch onto the sides of seals yeah. and cut cookie-shaped chunks out of them. Okay. But then you can have something like a leech or a tapeworm, mm. which is much more related to something else than the cookie-cutter shark is to it. Mm-hmm. So they've converged on this one lifestyle of taking things without giving things. And I mean, it's slightly different to a, a mutualist, which is something that takes things, but it gives something back. So that's like a bee in a flower. So they're swapping okay. something. The okay. flower gets... Pollinated and the bee gets some, some nectar or yes. some pollen, depending on what it's going for. So parasites are the cheaters of the, like they cheat mm. in the natural world. Does, does it have to be, uh, does it have to be something solid to be classified as a parasite or it could be really anything? So it's kind of an arbitrary thing, right? Like a virus mm-hmm. is a parasite. Like the common cold. The common cold, rhinovirus, is mm. a parasite. And then equally, a tapeworm is a parasite. Yes. And equally, you can have like a mistletoe that you kiss under during Christmas <laughs> is technically a parasite. They grow on a tree and they don't give anything back. So it's oh. very broad and it transcends lots of kind of taxonomic divisions yes. in our tree of life. Yes. Yeah. Is there a particular uh, parasite that you study in? Is there a particular ah. few? Yeah. So because so, it is so vague. Yeah. Yeah, 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 of course. So parasitologists do study parasites, but we limit ourselves to a very small, well, I think it's quite a large group, but in the grand scheme of life, it's a very small group. Yeah. So obviously parasitism transcends a lot of different groups, but we don't think at all about plants or fungi. Mm. So you, you know the kind of, the fungi, the, the cordyceps that will take over the brains of yes. ants and things. Yeah. So that's another parasite. So we completely ignore those. Why is that? And we ignore bacteria and we ignore viruses. Why? And we limit ourselves to parasitic worms uh, parasitic arthropods, so things like lice and ticks, mm. and parasitic protozoa. What's that? So protozoa are like malaria, or like malaria is a, is a parasitic protozoan, mm. or Babesia, which is less commonly known about, or African sleeping sickness is caused by <laughs> another 
one of these things. But I mean, malaria is probably the poster child of mm. protozoan parasites. And we do that simply because historically, the microbiologists dealt with most of the viruses yes. and the bacteria. So just through, and we kind of dealt with everything else. Mm. And so just based on that convention, we still deal with everything else, even though they're not related by some kind of shared ancestry. It's just that we started 200, 300 years ago and just gotcha. kept going. Gotcha. Yeah. So my group is ticks, mainly. Ticks. Okay. Or ectoparasites more broadly. And I do dabble with worms, but ticks is ticks and tick-borne diseases is my big love and mm. central focus in life. <laughs> so whenever we go to the forest, I always take a sheet and I drag it along the ground and hope mm. that ticks will jump on. Or if someone gets ticks, I get very excited and go and pluck all the ticks off. Okay. Or if there's road... Back when I was living in Australia, we'd have to stop at every single roadkill and check it for ticks and check it for fleas and check it for lice. Mm. I always had my little parasitology kit in the back. Yeah. So we'd stop, open it up, get my tweezers out, pull all the lice, pull all the ticks off and then keep going down the road until we saw <laughs> the next roadkill, which is... I'm so curious. What, what do you do after you get the ticks? What sort of... All kinds of things. So sometimes we're looking for new species. So parasites are really understudied for the diversity that we have. So there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of species. Like, I mean, take parasitic worms. So we know there's about, so far there's about 70,000 with names. 70,000? 70,000. Wow. Okay. We estimate there's probably 300,000 in total at least. So we've done a quarter of them. So three quarters yeah. still need to be named <laughs> yeah. and found and identified. Yeah. So a lot of the time we spend our time just trying to work out which are new species mm. and then what they're doing in the environment, what they're contributing to the environment because parasites do have big roles in, in nature and also whether they can affect humans or whether they can affect animals yes. and what they might be doing and whether they might cause problems down the line, mm. that kind of stuff. So we'll take, say, I mean, okay, I'll give you an example. So we, I had a, a lovely chap in, in Western Australia contact me mm -hmm. and he said, I've been bitten by a tick and I send it to you and can you identify it? And I said, yeah, send it in. Great. Yes, please. Yeah, good for our collection. Okay. Good for our archives, essentially. Yeah. So we sent it in and then... A few months later, he developed a red meat allergy. Oh, so the tick uh, had bitten him and it had caused him to have become allergic to red meat. Yeah. So when he has red meat, he gets an awful allergic reaction. Can it be traced to that particular tick though? So that's the only tick bite he'd had. Mm -hmm. And since about 2009, uh, scientists started to realize that actually ticks can sensitize, some ticks can sensitize some people's mm -hmm. immune system to a little protein called alpha-galactam. Mm -hmm which you find in all sorts of things. So you find it in red meat. It's used as a gelatinizing agent in a lot of things. So you can find it in cornflakes oh, wow. and things like that. So your body becomes sensitized to it. So whenever your body encounters this, it mounts a really huge immune attack. Yeah. And it says, this is a dangerous thing. Let's get it. Let's like yeah. gang up everyone. And it gets a little bit trigger happy. Mm. And so then it causes a, a, a much more serious allergic reaction. So because he'd sent us the tick, we could say, okay, well, we know where you got the tick bite yeah. and we know which species you got bitten by. Yeah. So then we can say, okay, this is a species which nobody knew about before, but this one can not only bite and feed on people or has a proclivity to do that, yeah. but it can also make them terribly sick. That is ridiculous. So that's, I mean, that's not bad from <laughs> yeah, just a guy yeah. messaging me on Facebook and saying, hey, I'd like to, <laughs> could you answer this? So, so what, what, um, what remedies does he have to? Is he just Nothing. allergic? There's no, so there's, at present, there's no cure for tick bite-induced red meat allergy. So it's basically leave it and sometimes over time, mm. 
the immune reaction will decrease. Mm -hmm. But then if you get resensitized by a tick, it jumps right up again. Oh, so wow. basically avoid ticks and hope that it declines. <laughs> wow. That's all we have at the moment. So he's doomed to avoid red meat, which depending on how you view the environment, may possibly be a good thing. <laughs> Beneficial. <laughs> That's it. Nature's coming so, in. And <laughs> so please into the bigger part of nature, really. Well, potentially. potentially. <laughs> yeah. So w would you say the field of study, it's the, 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 the field of study is constantly evolving because you yeah, very much. people over the world are constantly finding new species and new yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, different things. And then we're getting new technologies and things. Like what we used to be doing 50 years ago, we, I mean like... You can spit on those people. It's like <laughs> from could, our big ivory towers. Could you paint us an example? Okay, so I mean, malaria is a good example, mm. really good example, because that's burden that's been with us for thousands of years. Yeah, and you can find examples of this going. I mean, back in like Chinese antiquity. So like, go to the like the Yellow River people, the first Han people mm -hmm. were plagued by malaria, mm. and we know that it spread through Europe, and it like that's where that's actually where we get the name from. Malaria, malaria. comes from the the term mal, which is an old uh, British word or English word for bad. Mm. And air, bad air. Interesting. So you get this where there's bad air, which is generally swamplands and things, mm. right? But I mean, it's been with humans for millennia, mm. millennia, right? And so let's say in the 1950s, we were discovering or trying to come up with proper scientifically validated cures for it, even the 1800s. So we came up with quinine, which is a bark from a tree. A bark? Yeah. It's okay. a bark and you extract this compound from it. You give people quinine and it can stop malaria. Wow. And that was kind of the extent of parasitology at that point. Is mm. We could try and start to identify malarial species, or we, we were very actively identifying malarial species and trying to find remedies for it. Yeah. And it was a lot of hit and miss. Yeah. So it's a lot of like, give people this and see if it kills them. Oh, Hope it doesn't kill them. <laughs> and if it works, great. Yeah. Kind of thing. And then obviously the malaria are developing resistance yes. constantly because yes. we're subjecting them to pressure. Yeah. So we're killing all the malaria and any of these billions of malaria, little malarial parasites that are in your blood, maybe one of them survives and then gets transmitted by a mosquito. And then you have a selection event for mm. this super malaria yeah. that can now wow. withstand quinine. Mm. So we had that. And I mean, nowadays we can screen the genome we can identify the genes that are causing the resistance. If we want, we could use something like CRISPR to knock out the genes. Mm. So CRISPR is a molecular technology. So we can basically, so you've got your, your recipe book, which is your genome, and you basically rip out a page, mm. a part of the recipe. So maybe one recipe is for resisting quinine. We can rip that out with CRISPR and then send the malaria back in. Yeah. So we can rewrite or partially rewrite the genome of, of species. I mean, as far as I know, nobody's done CRISPR gene knockout, resistance gene knockout in malaria. But I mean, it's theoretically, theoretically very possible. possible yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's where we are now from being very much on the back foot mm. with parasitic disease to now actively having a much better, probably the best knowledge and the best ability to manipulate parasites and control parasites and fight parasites than we've ever had in history. Mm. And it's fantastic because it means that we're making, progress. I mean, huge progress, but particularly in the world's poorest people. So in somewhere like Singapore, yeah, we get a bit of dengue, Mm. I mean, it's not mm. particularly pleasant and it can kill you if you have this, it is the second time and you get the hemorrhagic form. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like we're all wandering around and half of us have malaria. So we're in a pretty good situation. But you go to somewhere like Gambia mm -hmm. or Nigeria mm -hmm. and it's a very, very different story. And so now we have the technology to help the world's most vulnerable people, the, the poorest, yes. the, the least well-off, the least healthy, the least educated, all that. And we can suddenly 
Elevate them, yeah. Elevate them, yeah, yeah very much so. Because, I mean, these are, I mean, there's lots of reasons why they're poor, but yeah. one of the reasons is that they're, in many of these populations, they're continuously sick and it's very yes. hard to go to school if you're yeah, exactly. bedridden half a year, yeah. right? So we can start to lift them out of poverty in a way that we've never done before. Mm. And there's, I mean, great examples of that. Like there's this parasite called a guinea worm. What is that? Uh, so it's, it's this worm that grows oh, a few Jesus, feet long. That is long. Wow. And you get it when you drink water that's infected with um, the, the, the worm's larvae. Okay. Basically invades this little aquatic crustacean. Okay. And this little thing is very, very tiny, just a few millimeters long. Mm. And so if you don't filter your water, this thing can be in your water. Then you drink this little crustacean in your water and the worm's inside. And the worm will grow inside you and it'll form this kind of little Bump? boil under your skin. Okay. And eventually the female worm will start to come out very slowly over the course of several weeks. And it feels like you're continuously being burnt with a cigarette butt. At that particular wow. spot where At the boil is. At that particular is. spot. Okay. So people try and soothe the pain and they go down to the river and they soak the worm and then the worm releases its eggs and you start the cycle all over again. Or all over again. I get so it. in the 1980s, mm. there were 3.5 million cases of guinea worm infection in Africa. Mm. This year, we're down to 25. Wow. Which is, so it's on the verge of extinction. It's close to 40 years and it's down to 24. Wow. Yeah. So 25 <laughs> yeah. cases this year and it's down to a handful of countries, mm. which is incredible. And I mean, that's kind of parasitology. This will be the next, uh, the next smallpox. So we wiped out smallpox from the wild. Now it's only in the US in labs and Russia in labs. Mm. And it's as far as we know, it's probably gone everywhere else. I suspect China probably has it because China would be foolish not to have it. They shouldn't mm. have it, but they probably do have it. Yeah. But I mean, this is basically gone from the world. It doesn't cause horror in people anymore. Yeah. And we're about to be done with guinea worm as well, mm. which is... Remarkable. It's the first time in human history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll yeah. be the first parasite we've ever eradicated. Wow. Which is... So, I mean, we've it's making a leaps humanity. and bounds. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, most of it's... I mean, World Health Organization has played a huge role, but I mean, a lot of it is like private philanthropic stuff. So, like, this is mostly... Almost all of the guinea worm stuff is done by the Carter Foundation, former president, what? Jimmy Carter from the US. He basically mm. set up his foundation. And one of his big goals is I'm going to wipe out guinea worm. Mm. And he's almost... Almost there, he's yeah. Almost done it. It's pretty good. Not bad. Can well, we talk a little bit about dengue? Because you, you brought it mm. up. Would, would you consider dengue a, a, a parasite as well? Well, I mean, the virus is, yeah, it's a parasite. Mm. So Parasitologists why? don't study it, but mm. I mean, virologists will study it. If you were to hypothesize, why is it that if you were to get dengue a second time, it is more potentially more fatal than the first time? Oh, it's time? much worse. So, I mean, it's been a long time since I studied dengue. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, when I say studied, I mean, took classes on it when I was un an undergraduate. Yeah. Right. But... Essentially, dengue works because it gets into your immune cells and mm -hmm. it uses one particular type of immune cell to reproduce in. It actually needs this cell to reproduce in. Mm. It's very specialized. So when a pathogen enters your body, right, whether it's a common cold or a dengue, after you, a dengue virus after you've been bitten by a mosquito, it essentially wants to get to a particular kind of cell and then it basically hijacks the cell and convinces the cell to reproduce the virus. So it turns the cell into a virus factory. And all the cell does instead of reproducing proteins or enzymes, like I mean enzymes are proteins, but proteins or other cells or something, it just makes viruses mm. until eventually the cell dies or often, I mean, dies and explodes and then little viruses come out and find new cells. Yeah. So the dengue virus needs to get into a particular kind of cell and this is an immune cell. And one of the immune cells which is associated with picking up and destroying pathogens. So oh. microbes. So yeah. the first time it gets into you, your body doesn't know what it looks like. Yeah. So your body needs to learn. And that's... 
Um, your body moves around, the cells in your immune system move around and they try and find this thing, they pick it up, they absorb it, and then they learn about what, I mean, I say learn, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> it works out. Yeah. I mean, to anthropomorphize it a bit, but it works out exactly what the little surface proteins are on this thing so that it can recognize it, create antibodies. So next time it can get it really quickly before it causes damage. Yes. The difference with dengue is though, it wants to get inside this cell. So the better your body gets at finding it, mm. the more effective dengue is at reproducing itself. Because rather than having to wait a whole while for your body to pick up the few viral particles that there are in your body, yeah. now your body's like, oh, there's dengue. I'm going to get you. Mm. But it, it wants it, it to come, yeah. And then dengue gets exactly what it wants. And it gets inside all these cells that it needs to reproduce in. So you get a really extreme um, that, 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 that disease the second sense, time. Yeah. It causes that dengue hemorrhagic fever, which often causes people to bleed to death. Yeah which is why you definitely don't want it the second time. Mm. Generally, it's okay if you get a different strain of the virus, but if you get the same strain... Chances so are... Pretty oh, bad. you're not in for Yeah, yeah, you're not. <laughs> so it's, yeah, not so good. Wow. And it looks like that's going to be the new... So, I mean, in our city areas, we're getting very good at wiping out malaria. Yes. Malaria has kind of a cumbersome life cycle because it what do you mean takes a while. So, I mean, it's got to invade a whole bunch of different organs. Right, it's and it's moving through, so it's, go in, it's invading particular organs and then it goes through a very complicated life cycle within your body and then in the mosquito. Whereas mm. dengue basically just gets in, reproduces itself and then it's ready to, it's prime the next time you get bitten by a mosquito Man. and it's back out in the world. Yeah. So it looks like in urban spaces, malaria is very much on the decline and you can see that in Singapore, there's almost no domestic cases of malaria anymore. But dengue though. Dengue is the new urban killer, yeah. essentially. And especially if you're in somewhere like India, mm -hmm. where maybe you don't have the greatest public health system mm. and medical system or infrastructure, you're especially you're going to be especially hard done by by dengue virus. Because if you get the hemorrhagic form the second time you get it, you're cactus. I mean, lots of times you be cactus. What's I mean, oh sorry, what's this a cactus? Is, this is Australian slang. <laughs> <laughs> so what cactus is like you're fucked. Oh, you're fucked. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could have surmised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, man, you're fucked. <laughs> Like nine times out, maybe not nine times out of ten, but a lot of times out of ten, you're not going to have a good time of it and you very well might die. Mm. So it's, yeah, there'll be changes in what diseases we have in the cities, but dengue is going to be one to look out for. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah, very nice. I noticed that it's also pretty problematic in Singapore. Yeah, it is pretty problematic. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. There are quite yeah, a few cases. On yeah. the street alone, there's 40 cases. Yeah, and it doesn't look like it's ever going to be. I don't know. They do a lot of fogging and it doesn't seem to work. Yeah. I mean, one kind of expects that. Could it I be because of the, the the evolution and it being more immune to the fogging? Do you think that's possible? Well, the mosquitoes becoming evolving immunity to the fog. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen anything about that. It wouldn't shock me. I mean, we know that... through the So in the 20th century, we thought we were going to wipe out malaria mm. because we developed this special little compound called DDT. What's that? DDT was kind of the first large-scale insecticide to be used and they used it kind of around the second world war and then into the 1950s and 60s a little bit and it's still used in some places today foolishly but essentially it was this kind of all-purpose insecticide so people would like cover themselves in it for lice and you'd see them during the second world war the americans during the beach hopping kind of moving through okinawa and up to japan yeah. you'd see themselves dusting in it to get rid of the lice that would spread <laughs> typhus yeah. and kind of things but it's really not a health food so then we discovered later on that it bioaccumulates. And this is kind of one of, I don't know if you know of Rachel Carson, but she, no. she wrote Silent Spring, which she was an incredible uh, ecologist from the US, but she wrote this book, Silent Spring. 
Anyway, they kind of found that this thing bioaccumulates and it moves up the food chain and then it weakens bird eggs. So we found that all the raptors, all the very top birds in the food chain were dying because their eggs would just collapse. Mm. So it was good for killing mosquitoes and lice, but it was very, very bad for the rest of our ecosystem. Yeah. Right. So we got rid of that. But I mean, what we learned from the DDT is during the 1950s, we were like, oh, malaria is gone in the next 20 years, right? Because we can get rid of mosquitoes because mm. we have this all-purpose insecticide. Yeah. And all that happened is we applied really high selection pressure and then the mosquitoes evolved resistance because we applied such a high selection pressure. And the same thing happens whenever you use mm. any insecticide or antibiotic. You give it time long enough and one individual with partial resistance yeah. will come through and, and we'll then slip through the net and then yeah. they'll reproduce and you've got the whole problem all over again because life is very good at not dying, <laughs> right? Would you say it's like a constant uphill battle trying to yeah. combat? It's like constantly having to find well, new I mean, solutions. Well, I mean, until this point in history, it seemed very much like an uphill battle. I suspect that probably in the next hundred years, it won't become an uphill battle as we unlock the powers of biotechnology. What is mm. biotechnology? So we'll be able to, we'll have such a fine understanding of how cells work and how the molecular mechanisms of our bodies and pathogens work that things like CRISPR, we can knock out genes very easily and that'll become much more refined. Mm. I mean, not that necessarily CRISPR will change the world, although I think it will, but we'll get even better technologies as time goes on because we're starting to fully or like get a much better understanding of how cells work. So previously it was kind of, here's the pathogen, find the poison that yes. kills the pathogen. Yep. And now it's getting to a point where we can say, okay, here's the pathogen, let's reach into its genome, its recipe book, let's just rip out this thing. Mm. kind of thing so we can kind of unlock the very inner workings as opposed to this kind of back-footed reaction it's very archaic way of yeah, yeah yeah so what we were doing 50 years ago and even today will look very primitive i suspect in 100 years or maybe even 50 years depending on how quickly we advance but at the rate people are getting educated and the biotechnology and biological sciences are developing mm. we very well uh may not have problems although it looks like i mean if we don't do it in time, we are in for very big problems. Antibiotics resistant it, resistance is one big thing. And within the next kind of 20 years, we may be back to no antibiotics. What does that mean? Wow. So, I mean, whenever you get sick, you take antibiotics, right? Yeah, Panadol, You get a urinary like tract that. infection, yep. you take antibiotics. You yep. get a bit of septicemia, hopefully not. What's you, blood poisoning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. you, you step on a nail and you yeah. get tetanus or something. Yeah. You take, take an some, antibiotic. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I mean, hopefully you've got your stuff. vaccine. Mm. But yeah, something yeah. like penicillin is, a, is the first yeah. antibiotic. But now we've got all sorts of things, doxycyclines, whatever. Yeah. It's getting to a point where our arsenal of antibiotics is running out quicker than we're replenishing it. So we're not discovering new antibiotics at the same rate the pathogens are developing resistance to it. Oh, so okay. we have this disconnect, yeah. which means that we have things like um, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, which is... I mean, the poster child of, of, of uh, antibiotic-resistant bugs, mm -hmm. superbugs. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, if you want to get it, you go to a hospital, and that's where you find it. You want to get it, you go to a hospital? Yeah. So that's where this thing is very, very common, mm. because this right. is the place where it's been subjected to, the, to yeah. the most antibiotics. Yeah. So this thing is, yeah, very nasty um, microbe, and we basically can't treat it anymore, except with some very, very nasty antibiotics that end up in a kind of race of can we kill this thing before we kill the person that this thing is in mm. so that's wow. the kind of level with some of these things we are and as it expands as these microbes expand their resistance yeah 
it's even worse. I mean, in Vietnam now we're getting malaria that's resistant to basically every antiparasiticide we have. That is scary. <laughs> so malaria may make a comeback if we don't get it in time. Mm. So it's, it could be very bleak or it could be very good, depending on if you're a glass half full or a glass half empty kind of person. Does, does this sort of like pressure, mm. right, which causes this evolution and this mm. resistance, have anything to do with the increase of the number of people on the planet? Oh, very much so. I mean, it's, it's not as direct as you might think. So one might think that we have more people, so we're using more antibiotics, so antibiotics resistance should increase, which is technically true. Where we're finding the most antibiotics resistance is not actually coming often from hospitals, it's coming from factory farms, animal factory farms. So where you keep pigs, say in mass, mm -hmm. they're often treated with sub-optimal doses of antibiotics. And we do that because they're in such high concentrations and such high densities that if you get something, it spreads through the population of pigs very quickly. So basically farmers will give them these kind of lowish doses which kill most things and keep them reasonably healthy but you don't have to spend too much yep. right so you don't have right. to yep. give them a full dose because of that we start you find almost all the resistance is coming from things like pig high intensity high yeah, high intensity pig farming mm. indoor pig farming mm. and then it jumps out into the human population right so you could definitely draw a very causal link between mm. population growth i would probably draw the link more than population growth with affluence so the richer you get, the more protein you tend to eat. That's a general trend. Yes. Right. So the richer societies get, the more meat they want to eat, and therefore you need to supply things like pigs, which you can cultivate on a very high-density scale. With mm -hmm. cows, it's very hard to keep them indoors constantly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right. the Americans do during the winter, but it's not really a thing you can do permanently. Pigs, on mm -hmm. the other hand, you just keep them in a very tiny pen. I mean, as inhumane as that is, I'm personally quite against it. But you keep them in a little pen, and then you feed them soybeans or whatever corn yeah and you just continuously grow them and you can have thousands of pigs within a few like a kilometer like tens of thousands of pigs within one square kilometer of a factory farm and so that's tens of thousands of pigs that you're feeding these sub optimal levels of antibiotics yeah and that's how many microbes is on a pig and mm. how many pigs are there yeah so you get trillions and trillions upon trillions of chances for one to develop resistance so it's like it's coming <laughs> like it's, it's not a matter of if it's just when do it mm. enough times and eventually right. you get resistance mm. which is very very dangerous for us so you say it definitely has something to do with consumption habits mm. and we're the, not a very sustainable yeah. species no we're, we're not yeah we're uh i don't know we're kind of like in australia there was this case we had of i mean it wasn't the koala's fault but there was this little island of gum trees mm -hmm. and they added koalas. Someone decided to put koalas on them. <laughs> and within like 20 years, they deforested the whole island and they'd all starved to death. Wow. And we're kind of like those koalas sitting on this island very quickly eating our last gum tree mm. and not quite smart enough, even though we should be. I mean, we're a lot more sentient than a koala. A lot, so. more, <laughs> a lot more or are we? able to think about <laughs> our, our consequences of our actions. Yeah, mm. The koalas were more or less doomed. Mm -hmm. We should have the capacity to not doom ourselves. Whether that happens or not is something else. Mm. But I mean, if you want to, I don't know, if you want to help the environment, this kind of reuse, reduce, recycle stuff or like no straws is absolute like bullshit. Okay. Why is hate, that? Oh, the straw thing. I hate the most. Why? The straw thing is ridiculous. So it's like, so a whole bunch of reasons. Mm. But one, it's a fucking token gesture, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I'm not going to use a straw, but 
give it to me in a plastic cup that uses <laughs> three or four times as much plastic and then I'll carry that around. Yeah. It's like big fucking difference, right? Mm. No. Right. And then you feel good about yourself and you're like, oh, well, I'll just go and eat a steak dinner because I didn't use my fucking straw. Yeah. Rubbish. Or alternatively, they'll be like, oh, I use a metal straw because it's reusable. That's like, one, how much greenhouse gas did it take to mine the metal and then smelt the metal, which is like, man, if it's a tin straw, you used a huge amount of energy to do mm. that. And then you're probably not even going to use it that long. Mm-hmm. Like you might lose it or something. And then you go, <laughs> go <laughs> and buy another <laughs> straw. <laughs> or people talk about like paper straws. Mm. How many trees did you cut down to get the paper to make that straw? Yeah. Not very environmentally friendly, is it? Mm. So it's yeah. this whole like circle jerk wank of people that think they're helping the planet with like not using a damn straw. This is token gesture rubbish. Because there's money to be made in that. Yeah, that's it. But it's like fake virtue signaling rubbish. Yeah. It's like if right. you want to help the like planet, there are many more things you can do. And I mean, mm. one that nobody talks about is population growth. Mm. If you, That's yes. the number one driver of like climate change, deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, yeah. uh, ex- biodiversity decline. Yeah. You can like if you want to find the the most the best link between one single cause and all of those things is population growth. What do you mean by population growth though? Well, people having more babies. Everybody wants to have a house. Everybody wants to eat a steak dinner. Yeah. Everybody wants clothes. Mm -hmm. Mm. So, I mean, it means you need this many more sweatshops of little five-year-olds making Adidas Mm. sneakers and you need this many more pigs in high cultivation. You need to clear this much more land to put houses on. You need to clear this much more land to grow the soybeans, to feed the pigs, to feed the people. Yeah. Right. If population growth, like, I mean... People wonder, they're like, oh, our emissions keep going up even though we're developing more and more renewable technology and you're switching to that. Meanwhile, their population is still growing. It's Mm, like, well, why do you think your emissions of your your national emissions are going up? Because you have more people Mm. kind of thing. So, I mean, that's the, but I mean, it's not an easy fix, right? Because either you try and encourage people not to have kids, which is very difficult, especially if you're in a country like India or Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm. Not that Sub-Saharan Africa is a country, but I mean a region. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, or the alternative is that you take a very totalitarian view of it, like China, and basically mm. say, if you have a second kid, we will sterilize you by force, oh, which is maybe not the nicest thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The one positive, the one silver lining I see of this is as people get more affluent, their birth rates crash. Right. There's no developed country where the birth rates are on par with mm, the deaths. That is interesting. Everywhere yes. it's dropping. There's not one developed country. So yeah. the, the replacement level is you need to, every woman needs to have 2.1 kids mm. to make replacement. The reason why there's the 0.1 is because there's lots of tragedies and kids get yep. hit by cars and yep. people die in accidents. Right. Yep. So you need 2.1 to keep your population absolutely stable. Mm. Yep. Nowhere has that. Singapore has something like 1.4 births per woman, yeah. which mm. is nowhere near it. Yeah. Japan, I think, is just up to 1.4. Maybe Singapore, the last time I looked, maybe it was 1.1, but it's one of the lowest in the world. Mm. Right. China's dropping rapidly. They're not going to m- meet replacement. Yeah. Um, and they're not even fully developed in a lot of areas. If you mm-hmm. go to the rural areas, it's yep. real yeah. crap. Japan yeah. is really low. Korea's really low. Taiwan's really low. I mean, the East Asian countries yes. yeah. that developed a long time ago, comparatively speaking. Yeah. yeah. They all have, like plummeting birth rates do you think it's an um, unpopular opinion though what do you mean um have less kids yeah i think it depends who you talk to Mm -hmm. i don't think it's i don't think people really have an opinion about it because nobody's talking about it (laughs) i mean like nobody's i mean if you say you should have one less kid and i want two kids say i'm gonna be like fuck off i'm gonna have my second kid right because it's a deeply personal thing yeah 
But I think most people are not going to go into the streets and protest, I want to have two kids. They're just going to do it because nobody's stopping them. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, I don't think anyone should be stopping them. I think it, once you bring people into a developed economy, like a developed market economy generally, they just stop having kids. Because mm. they're like women aren't just sitting at home anymore yep. as baby factories like yep. you see in sub-Saharan Africa. They have careers, they have jobs, yeah. they're highly educated, yes. they can make much more informed decisions about what they have inside them and how many babies they want. Mm. And they often have the economic ability to walk out if a bloke is treating them like crap. Yeah. Like, no, I'm going, I've got a job now, I'm going to go and just get an apartment. There's independence. Yeah, so it gives, especially, I mean, man, if you want one way to stop growing population, empower, like, I mean... I'm not being a like kind of virtue signaling PC kind of person, but seriously empower women. If you want the one, the best method is empower women. And that's it. You've like solved <laughs> overpopulation. Solved give women jobs and uh, give them rights over their reproduction. So mm. essentially give them mm. access, yeah. free access to contraceptives, yeah. condoms, the pill. Yeah. Abortions? Uh, that's up to you. I mean, and <laughs> yeah. it's a, yeah, another very deep yeah. <laughs> question, right? But I mean, at least give them, I mean, we know from a lot of the data says if you give peop women economic opportunity, so give them the chance to have a job and give them contraception yep. and your birth rates will fall. Mm. As maybe unpopular as it is amongst people on much more of the extreme left, bring capitalism into their country and birth rates will fall. If you, once people are being having to work nine to five jobs or worse <laughs> there's no time to have kids anymore yep. Yep. and you're getting rich so it's like man i want to consume things yeah. i want consumable yep. products so i'm going to work harder mm. who yeah. needs kids and also by the time you start getting that often you start developing some kind of social safety net mm -hmm. mm. which means that people don't rely on kids to be their retirement plan because the state starts supplying something of a retirement plan yeah and even in countries like china where there's a huge population and they still have a very weak but still present slight social safety net, some kind of support in retirement. It's very meager. But mm -hmm. I mean, even countries like China are doing it. Mm -hmm. So I mean, man, if China can do it, it's like anyone can kind of, mm. like they've never been that big on the people's welfare at an individual level. Yeah. So if they're doing it, <laughs> it's like anyone can kind of do it, right? The rest of the countries have the buck up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think they're kind of, they are. I mean, like, Taiwan's doing pretty well. Korea and Japan, I mean, you'd expect them to do really well. South mm -hmm. Korea. <laughs> North Korea, I wonder. The Western countries have been doing that for ages. America's not so good. They're getting, I don't know, if they like get better or worse. Systems, right? Yeah, basically bring in a social safety net. Mm. Yeah. You can also drop that kind of stuff. And right now, that seems like that's what we need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think, yeah. Social safety net is a very, very good idea. Mm. And it ends up probably saving you a lot more money than it costs. Like, I mean, like, you'll probably have a net benefit, mm. probably. Because, yeah. I mean, I mean, take the United States. The United States is a great example. It's like a Petri dish of what happens if you give people too much liberty. Give them yeah, enough freedom that they can impinge on the freedom of other people. Mm. Right. It's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's not beautiful, <laughs> but I mean, it's a beautiful case study, right? Interesting. So they've kind of gone this angle of, like... It's a jungle. The smart slash rich slash well-connected will survive and the rest of you are fucked mm. kind of thing. Mm. So work hard or you'll be trash mm -hmm, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And if by some horrible thing, maybe you're not that smart or maybe 
you miss some opportunity or something and you're just fucked for it's, some it's stochastic fault. reason. It's your fault. Yeah. And you should be able to get out of it. Mm. No matter how, like maybe even like literally huge, huge numbers of people are born very dumb. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that as a pejorative kind of thing. Mm-mm. It's like some people just have a very low yep. IQ and they can't do as complex tasks as other people. Yep. And that's a real disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Or if you're born into poverty, man, if you want to try and trace, uh, what would you say? disempowerment Mm -hmm. skin color is not the best way to look at it economic classes look at poor people yeah and they're the most disadvantaged of anyone if you're born into a poor family you have it really rough yeah kind of thing but i mean the u.s is a great case study because they've kind of gone to the point of we're not going to provide any social i mean this is what we're talking about before they're not going to we're not going to provide any social safety net Mm -hmm. because it'll save us money and then unsurprisingly crime goes up yeah because people can't just die. Yeah. So people are like, okay, well, I need to eat. I need to feed my kids. And working a $5 survive. an hour yeah. job is not paying it. So I'm going to go and steal something. And then you end up with like all sorts of economic losses because you've got to pay for more policing. You've got to pay for the repairs mm. kind of, of shops. So you probably end up spending more on like policing mm. the incarceration system and repairing broken or stolen stuff yeah. than if you just paid people or like just provided a decent social safety net or a minimum wage kind of stuff. So, I mean, yeah, social safety net is important. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it useful sounds, thing to have. It sounds very psychical. Like everything has a cause and effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it goes back to ecology, right? Yeah, well, you know? human, I mean, if you think of economies, they're very much like ecosystems. Mm. I mean, they're very messy like ecosystems as well and they're very hard to predict what's going to happen and that depends if you want to talk about macroeconomics or microeconomics but especially macroeconomics is very hard to predict but yeah it's kind of i mean it's yeah cause and effect a lot of cause and effect stuff especially in economics some of it's very opaque though like the effect things will have is very kind of tricky to predict it's Mm. a very imprecise science Mm. yeah yeah i have a i have like this question which is, oh, well, not really a question, mm. more of like an inquiry, mm. which is where you mentioned earlier that the um, the study of parasites was more about, what was it written? It was um, about the way of life. Mm. Right? Yeah, their lifestyle, how they right. live, how they survive. And I, I wanted to know what your, what your disposition is mm. on human behavior in how? relation to parasitic behavior. Okay. Can you expand more? Give me a um, something slightly more tangible. I mean, like yeah. Let's say like consumption habits. Ha. Right. I mean, I don't even think the way people behave is necessarily parasitic. I think we behave exactly like a life form should behave. Mm. What do you mean? Like, I mean, a life form is supposed to consume resources and reproduce itself. Okay. And that's what life has been doing, and it doesn't matter what mm. area of life, whether you look at plants or fungi. Mm. You look at parasites, mutualists, like whatever. Mm-hmm. That's all we do. That's mm-hmm. what life is supposed to do. We consume, we're like following exactly what we're supposed to, the foundational principle. Beast if you were to write us life, as a, if yeah, you were right? to write a code for life, <laughs> yeah. that's what it would be. Yeah. Consume reproduce. resources, reproduce yourself. Yeah. yeah. Done. <laughs> that's it. So we do that. And it's kind of like people are surprised that we do. And it's like, really? <laughs> I don't know. Anything does that. Any, everything that doesn't do that is dead. It's extinct. Mm. It's gone. Mm. That is true. Do you think that maybe that's because people believe ourselves higher than 
higher than that because of our sentient disposition. What do you mean? <laughs> I think people people consume without concern because mm. we think that we're above that nature. People are surprised that we do that or feel like we shouldn't be doing that because of our sentience. I think that's a fair thing to say. I think it's fair that we should have some kind of, what would you say, not moral, but some kind of, yeah, maybe moral view that we should be above this kind of thing. We should transcend our animal origins. Right. And I think that's a fair, that's the point of humanity is we're supposed to come up with, that's why we don't crack each other's skulls open as much as we would otherwise. And mm. Right. I mean, we kind of do anyway, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, we, do, we have we? these kind of, we try and aspire to be better. We have yeah. high-minded, moralistic kind of mm. ideals that we try to espouse and live, live and act out. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what makes us human and that's beautiful. That pursuit for it. Yeah, pursuit to be something better is yeah. very, hu- it's the most human thing. Mm. But I mean, of course, we're not going to make it. We never, I mean, like we're not going to always achieve that. Mm. That's fair that's, enough. I mean, it's, it's not ideal. It's important. Yeah, and I mean, if you even get halfway there, it's better than getting none of the way there kind of thing. So I think that's good. I mean, I think the reason why we consume so much is, I don't know, have you heard of the tragedy of the unmanaged commons? No, No, what is that? that? It's like the idea that you have a communal, like, I mean, one example is you have a communal lake or a pond and it's stocked with fish Mm -hmm. and everybody has a fishing rod in the village Mm -hmm. and you all go and fish in the pond and you are supposed to take, let's say, one fish a day. Right. But nobody's managing the pond. Yeah. It's unmanaged. Yeah. So you can take as many fish as you want. Then one day the fish run out because everybody Took doesn't ten. care because yeah. they just wanted <laughs> to get the fish. Yeah. And so then nobody has fish. Mm. Whereas if everybody stuck to the rule of I'll take one fish a day, which is perfect replacement level of fish or something, mm. then there would be fish forever. Yeah. But if you yeah. don't constrain it in some way and have some kind of rule, some management of this commons, yeah. then people just r- wreck it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, I mean, the planet and resources. Yeah. There's nobody managing the commons, right. which is our Earth. Mm. So, of course, it's going to get wrecked. Do that's parasites kind of do that? Do parasites manage to... Well, they do... I mean, some of them do. There's this... There's a really good one. My favorite... One of my favorite your, examples. Your favorite parasite? Not my favorite, <laughs> but it's my favorite <laughs> example of this kind of parasites engineering ecosystems. It's this little fluke, which is like a little parasitic worm. Okay. Flatworm. And they live as adults inside the guts of birds and mm. as immature as they live in snails and they live on kind of coastal ecosystems in these intertidal ecosystems and in the ecosystem that they live there's one little periwinkle which is like a little snail mm-hmm. right. that's hyper competitive it's very very good at out competing all its neighbors okay so it'll graze all the algae mats all the algae along the shore yep. and then the others that are less good at competing will disappear from the area yep when this parasite is here it invades this very hyper-competitive periwinkle and it essentially castrates it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So okay. this thing can't reproduce very well. Okay. And um, because of that, periwinkle, that periwinkle species goes down and others can invade. So it maintains the diversity of the ecosystem by penalizing the hyper-diverse species. And because of that, you get more periwinkles and you get more bird life. So it engineers this kind of grassroots algae roots kind of <laughs> uh, maintenance of this diverse kind of ecosystem. Yeah. So right. yeah, parasites can be very good for that. I mean, that's one example. I mean, it's not well studied, but that's one kind of... So there's a functional uh, purpose for parasites in the ecosystem. I'm always kind of offended, not that I'm offended by you, but I'm always kind of offended by the notion that species should have a purpose. Mm. Right. There's this, there was this 
uh, bryologist. He studied uh, uh, mosses okay. and liverworts in South America. And he said some quote, I'll probably get it wrong, but to paraphrase it, he said something like, species are good in and of themselves, which should be the primary reason for any organism's existence. So it's kind of, they have intrinsic value. They don't need to have a purpose. Mm, they're, right. beauty in and, they're beautiful in and of themselves. And that's all that they need to be. Mm. Yep. It's, a very, it's a very human thing. And sometimes I think short-sighted to think that a species should have a purpose, even though we're taught it from the age of one kind of thing of like, the eagle eats the mouse and the mouse eats the seed. Yeah. Mm. Kind of thing that there's this great chain of being. Yeah. Yep. But I mean, I don't know. Lots of species don't have any reason, probably. Mm. They just exist. They just are because they're there. Mm. I don't know. There's ecosystems are not as defined. I don't know. There's they're not purposeful. They're okay. they're blind for they're blind systems. There's there's no greater purpose to them mm. other than each individual organism surviving. Would you say it's reactive? Sometimes. Often. But I mean any system is reactive, I think. Mm. It's very hard to find a system that's not reactive in some way. I mean, like, reactive in the sense that you do something and something will happen. Right. Yeah, fine. I mean, in that mm. sense, like, a, a, tower, a tower of kids' Legos is reactive. Yeah. You push one brick and they all come tumbling do you, down. That's a reaction. Would you say, like, with that flatworm example that mm. you gave us, that its capacity to then penalize that little periwinkle snail mm. was reactive? Like, how does, that, how does that come to be? Like, how does it have that capacity or how does it... Well, it's just well, the periwinkle no. builds up in high enough. It's like any when anything builds up in high enough numbers, something can exploit that, right? So it's like when humans build up in high enough densities and we're all shitting where we're eating, yeah. eventually cholera gets in and it kills us all, yeah. right? And it thins out the population and then the population is so low that cholera can't mm. get the, inf the kind of transmission threshold wherein it can right. kill us all. So it's these kind of cycles of back and forth of, mm. I wouldn't say out of balance, but when some factor is high something can come in and exploit that right. kind of thing but i don't think it's it's not purposeful it's yeah not, it doesn't come out as sentience either yeah there's no sentience to it there's yeah. no kind of there's no one there's person no purpose that, in it yeah. there's no one person dictating all these things it that's just it. Yeah, happens yeah, yeah. Yeah. it just happens hmm. but i mean that's kind of life and that's evolution and that's ecosystems is there's no sentience driving yeah. things necessarily i mean depending on what you believe <laughs> i personally don't believe there's sentience <laughs> driving and i think it's just a lot of organisms struggling to survive yeah in this yeah. sea of diverse creatures mm. kind of thing. But I think that's kind of romantic in and of itself. Mm -hmm. yes. All these kind of beautifully, for incredibly beautifully formed structures, pieces of matter yeah. that have spent millions and millions of years and millions of generations, true, sometimes billions of generations, evolving to this special little form that we see now that does something very, very special and unique and specific. Stunning. Without any guidance. Mm. Wonderful. Really, like, I don't know. There's nothing more beautiful than, I don't know, a little flatworm burrowing into a snail so that it can eventually turn the snail blind and get into a bird or something. Like it's turn the snail blind. intricate. Like, I mean, there's this other thing. There's this, they call them green brood sacs and they're these little parasitic worms that get inside a snail. They turn the snail blind so the snail can't see if there's a bird. And then they kind of pulsate up and down the eye stalks and they have these vivid green and kind of red bands on them uh -huh. wow. so they're kind of these hypnotic pulsating uh 
worm sacs inside gotcha. the eye oh, stalks of these snails. Terrible. And so the bird sees this thing and thinks, oh, is that a caterpillar? Mm. And the snail can't see the bird. And it's this little, yeah, this little fluke, this little parasite manipulating yeah. the whole, the rest of the players on the stage yeah. kind of thing. And to think that something went from a single boring gray cell mm -hmm. to this intricate, beautiful master okay. manipulator is stunning. Mm. I mean, it's like living things are incredible. Like it's really, Why? I'm in awe of that kind of thing. What? Okay. Why did you choose this particular field to study like <laughs> parasites in general? Uh, well, since I was little, I wanted to be a biologist. And then I settled on zoology, the study of animals. Okay. And I thought that was quite interesting. Then I thought, okay, got to specialize further because you can't be a, just a zoologist that studies everything. Mm. So I thought, oh, okay, invertebrates and insects particularly were quite interesting. And then I thought, okay, well, you can't study Amazonian termites because you'll never have a job. So pick something <laughs> that people that care mean? about. <laughs> Well, I mean, nobody's going to pay you to study Amazonian termites or some, like, esoteric yeah. kind of <laughs> really, like, niche area. So yeah. study something that people care about. So yeah. I settled on some kind of economic entomology or something. And I thought, oh, agricultural, maybe. And I thought, oh, medicine's where the money's at kind of thing. Or if you want funding and you want to study interesting things and answer interesting questions, medical stuff yeah and so i started working on medical insects mosquitoes and ticks and things and then i kind of just branched out because it was the natural but i mean it's all interesting i could have worked on mosses that would have been perfectly mm. <laughs> i would have been perfectly happy working on mosses or fungi or maybe not birds they're a bit overdone but you, you mentioned economic odd. entomology mm. is is that a uh, kind of a loose yeah. field what does that mean yeah i mean so it's just insects that cause some sort of economic damage Okay. So it's like whether they attack crops or whether they uh, uh, hurt people, mm. like something like it's like applied entomology kind of thing. Yeah. So it's making sure people don't lose money, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of cynical, but yeah. So I thought, yeah, parasitology was, was good and it, I don't know, it's allowed me to do lots of things. So I can do medical, I mean, it, I can do the medical side which is interesting and find new diseases and find new vectors and things. That's cool. You can look at biodiversity and species discovery. Um, and then even, so I do a little bit of conservation stuff as well. So parasite conservation, which is a kind of emerging field that me and a few other people are kind of pushing a little bit more. And it's the idea that, well, I mean, some parasites are endangered and we don't want them to go extinct. That is interesting. Yeah. So, so parasites I mean, are not all bad. Well, they're not. Yeah, they're not all like super survivors like malaria. Mm. Lots of them are in decline. So I mean like one good one, our local one, was going to bring one, but I couldn't <laughs> find a good vial of them. What a shame. What yeah. a shame. So we have, obviously in Singapore, we have pangolins, right? We have the yes. Sunda pangolin, which yes. are beloved viral by video. many. Yeah, recently. <laughs> they have their own tick called Amblyoma javanense, which is only found on the pangolin. Okay. They only live with the pangolin. So if the pangolin goes extinct, the tick goes extinct. So they have the same conservation status. They're both endangered. Mm. So, you, I mean, so that's one species that I'm particularly keen on not seeing go extinct because, I mean, it's another little piece of the web of life. Yes. And you obviously don't want to lose too many bits of that web or the web can come unfrayed. Mm. Kind of, or can start to fray and can come undone kind of thing. So, I mean, yeah, there's some species, but it's still a bit taboo among, it's certainly taboo amongst the public. They don't like the idea of saving parasites. They don't like the idea of saving insects unless they're bees or butterflies. Yeah. <laughs> and even conservationists aren't very good at it. I mean, so a good example of this is 
there was this bird in California called a Californian condor, which is this big vulture. Yep. Right. And through the 20th century, they declined. We think a lot of it was because they would uh, eat animals that were shot with lead bullets. I mean, this is one of the reasons. And the lead would poison the birds. Oh, wow. Right. right. Um, I mean, that's one thing. There was a lot of reasons for the declines, yep. but that was one of them. By the 80s, there was 27-odd pairs left of these birds, or 27 birds left. Wow. So they were almost gone. All right. it would take was one serious lightning storm or there's a few flying out. So there was 27 left and San Diego's, the conservationists, conservationists, using yeah. an air, air quotes. Why, why is there air quotes? They took, they took all the birds into captivity. Okay. And despite having no evidence that the little louse that lived on these birds caused the bird any damage, they killed off all the lice because they were like, lice are parasites and we're going to wipe them out. Uh-huh. So the conservationists wipe out, wiped out a parasite yeah. in the process of trying to, or wiped out a species in the process of trying to save another species yeah. ah. kind of thing. That was our first recorded kind of parasite extinction, deliberate parasite extinction. Right. And I mean, when you think a species, and I mean, maybe it's a louse and it's maybe not that interesting or particularly sexy, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a species that's evolved for a really long time. Longer than us. Longer than, I mean, maybe, or as long as us anyway. And it's got this beautiful suite of, I mean, even if you're only caring about its utility to us, mm. this thing's evolved to modulate the immune system of its host. So it's got all sorts of interesting compounds that could be used for all sorts of interesting mm. things. Right. That's a really and beautiful way of looking so at it. So there's your whole, I mean, if you want to convince the public, you've got to say, how is this going to affect you? I, 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 yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. And uh, yeah, every time we lose it, we lose this whole pharmacy of potential drugs that can do all sorts of kind of things for us. I mean, also these feather lice are eating keratin in the feathers, which is the kind of the, the bone, the polymer that's, mm. yeah. that makes up the the the, the feather structure, mm. or like the the compound that makes up the feather structure. Right. And so, if you want to say start one day having bacteria making reusable bags out of keratin, so they grow the keratin and then we turn it into plastic bags because it's biodegradable. Then potentially at the end of the day, we can have a vat full of bacteria that make the same enzyme that this louse uses to break down the feathers and you can send them all back there and continuously recycle this process and turn them all back to carbon. Sounds like thing. science fiction, doesn't it? Yeah, but I mean, you can kind of do this stuff. But if you wipe out the thing that has yeah. the compound, you lose all the abilities to harness that compound for the sake of becoming greener, Mm. A greener economy, a greener society, which is tragic, I think. But it is very human to just because something has no yeah. utility to us, we dispose of it. At the time, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a pity, but it sounds like the archiving process is incredibly complicated because you're not just saving, like particularly the parasite itself, mm. but you need to preserve its host. Mm. It's a whole. It's like any ecosystem, right? If you people, I mean, the conservation community is very big on marketing individual species so it's like save singapore's forest because of the pangolin right or we want to save the pangolin right. or we want to save the panda i hate pandas <laughs> <laughs> such a rubbish species <laughs> anyway they're like let's save pandas right because people can see a panda's face and they can it's empathize adorable. with it yeah they're, they're yeah. cute things and they're very clumsy yeah. which makes them even cuter yeah. and more, <laughs> more nice to save but a panda without a bamboo ecosystem is a useless animal to have. Mm. Right. And there's not necessarily as much concern about whether the ecosystem gets cleared and turned into a hydropower dam or something yeah. as conserving the panda. So if you end up with all these species with no ecosystem to go back to, yeah. it's not so good, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. Like, I mean, you see it in Africa a little bit, much more because they're getting into 
trying to put in renewable energies, right? So there are a lot of hydro projects. Yeah. And you find in Africa, there's all these little frogs that live in these waterfalls and they only live in one waterfall or something and then the government uh, dams up the waterfall. The frog yeah. loses its habitat and disappears. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's all these, I mean, not all these, but there are some frogs in captivity that are in these little, I don't know, life, life preserves mm. kind of... Yeah. terrariums yeah. and they're the last of their kind yeah. their whole home's gone it's a dam now it's so you don't know what to do with them kind of thing but their ecosystem's completely gone it's making energy now and usually all these conservationists are they do they work with universities or hospitals or what are the facilities that they which that kind of conservationists in general mm, let's say specific to parasites hmm. there's very few people doing parasite conservation I would think so and most yeah. of us are still at the level of trying to convince zoos to do ex situ conservation. So that is take mm. parasites out of nature and bring them into captive breeding programs. Right. And still that's very tricky. The one example I do know of is the medicinal leech in Europe has declined massively. Yeah. And so there's a few places like I think Chester Zoo has a has a leech, a medicinal leech breeding program and then they mm. release them back into the wild. But that's the only one I know of that anybody cares about and that's because it's got kind of socio socio-cultural right. value because we used People to bleed used to ourselves it, yeah. with leeches yeah. for yeah. generations <laughs> <laughs> so i mean that's kind of the level we are now if you want to think about conservationists more broadly it's yeah. hugely diverse like ngos yeah. governments universities zoos mm. that kind of stuff yeah do you think because there is not much education about it and a lot of the the, the news we hear about parasites is mostly viruses, it's mostly a negative impact on yeah, yeah. Our, ourselves. That's why I, I don't think it's, it's I think it's okay to say that the public's assumption about when you talk about parasites has almost always a negative connotation to it. Yeah, we need to rebrand them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it's it. so many. <laughs> yeah, so some colleagues and I'm working with some colleagues at the moment and we're putting out a a paper, basically mm. like a outline of 10, 12 steps or something for parasite mm. conservation for the next 50 <laughs> years or something. And one of our big points is we need to rebrand <laughs> and make them lovable <laughs> kind of thing. Or you make them it, less get, hateable. You get a Help. social media account. <laughs> get it, it growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cute parasites. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> it. 100,000 well, followers. Some of them are okay. I think the that worm that invades the snail's eyes is quite cute. To right. us. To us. <laughs> so we're yeah. looking at it, yeah. Yeah, but I Not mean, that's a, good, that's a good candidate for like, I don't know, we do love some parasites. Like cordyceps is a good example. What, what is that? So cordyceps is the parasitic zombie fungus that takes over those ants and things. So they take over mm. a whole bunch of species, but they essentially infect this ant and then they convince it to go up high mm -hmm. and then it clamps on to a leaf and then it has this big, long fruiting body, okay. like a mushroom kind of, that spurts yeah. out of its head. Yep. Yeah. And then rains down these fine spores onto the rest of the colony and affects them as well. Mm. Wow. And I mean... That's horrifying. It's that horrifying, sounds, right? Yeah. But I mean, it's spawned... I think The Last of Us is some kind of video yeah. game. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. The yeah. game's a yeah. that jumps onto people <laughs> yeah. in like uh, Eastern medicine, particularly tr Chinese traditional medicine. It sells for like $1,000 for a few grams kind of thing. They're very, very sought after. Do expensive. you think it's because we find a way to utilize it? Yeah. That's why. Like it has utility to us, so we it has care, utility right? to us, yeah. But I mean, at the rate they're being harvested, they very well may not be here in 50 years because it's very unsustainable oh. in Tibet. I mean, a lot of high Himalayan ecosystems yeah. where mm. the you particular really species... can't harvest that kind of stuff. So no. they do... Har I mean, you can harvest it. Like, I mean, they grow naturally inside caterpillars that are underground and you wait till you right. see the stalk come up and the local people go and dig them up and sell them to 
to Chinese wow. medicine dealers. Yeah. And it's very likely that they could, if it's unchecked, you'll have that tragedy of the commons where everybody wants yes. to catch as many fish yeah. as they want or yes. as many cordyceps fungi as they want. Yes. And eventually the population crashes. Mm. And the money, you can look at the like economics of the value per gram and it's like shot up. And it's, I mean, partially because China's got very affluent now and you've got this huge class of people that yeah. aren't all these terribly educated on evidence-based medicine mm. Mm. and also have the money to blow on rhino horns and yep. tiger penises and whatever have you, right? Yep. yep. Or cordyceps, and so they can consume as much as they want kind of thing, so they can push the price up and increase the demand, which is unfortunate. But So, yeah, we may not have cordyceps fungus or this particular species, sinensis. Mm. Yeah, unfortunate. I don't know. Wow. Yeah, the whenever you come back to it, human population growth is probably the biggest driver of ecosystem collapse. Right. Yeah, or environmental yeah. catastrophe, I think, which is, yeah, very sad, but I don't know. There's light at the end <laughs> of the tunnel. There is? I think, I think at the rate that we're, man, we're like attacking poverty like there's no tomorrow. And I mean, mm. I don't necessarily mean... Uh, just NGOs and things. I mean, like poverty is declining massively, mm. right? Because right. The World Health Organization, Food and Agricultural Organization, World Development Bank, all these kind of things are funding stuff, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. You get a lot in Southeast Asia, so Indochina, mm. Mm. Um, India and South Asia, Bangladesh, India. And that's great because it's meaning people have a better standard of living. Yep. But then also big corporations are going in because it's not so inexpensive to produce things in South yep. Korea or Japan or China anymore. Mm -hmm. right. And they want to make sure their profit margins are higher. So they go and build their factories in Bangladesh. Yes. They go yeah. and build factories in India or wherever, Thailand, somewhere cheap. Yeah. And although the people are being exploited, right, mm -hmm. it does still bring them out of poverty, Yeah. which is great. Mm -hmm. And people have a nine to five job and they can afford things and they can be consumers as bad as that might be, but yes. at least it brings them out of abject poverty. Yeah. Mm. So I think there is a light at the end of the tunnel and, for the for for the time being anyway market capitalism may be the only solution well yeah probably <laughs> i mean it probably is you can't really do it any other way the question yeah. is can you bring people out of poverty be quicker than you can destroy the planet and you've got to be yeah. very careful about your balance right because if you're destroying it quicker than you're bringing people out of poverty you're in for a bad time yeah in the long run so it's yeah i don't know if you bring everybody out of poverty, the only other that would mean that everyone would need to also decrease their population. Is that right? Well, if you want to all live Sustainably. on one planet, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't want the world to burn, yes. So it's also kind of like leveling out the socio-economic status of a lot of different countries. Broadly speaking, probably right. you'll have a lot fewer people that are poor but then you've got to remember that the richest people are still getting very much richer mm -hmm. so yes. you're having this uh, magnification yeah. like there's a, we've probably in the last 200 years we've or 100 years we've probably never had so much economic disparity as we do now mm. the top richest people have very very much more than the bottom mm. half or something ridiculous like a bottom quarter i yeah. don't know the statistic the particular data but i mean it's shockingly <laughs> like disproportionate yeah not that you're necessarily aiming for exactly proportionate right that's a pipe dream if you want everybody to have exactly the same that yep. won't happen and yep. it's a nice lofty goal to try and go for yep try yep. and reduce economic inequality but you never get perfect mm. 
Right. And nor should you, right? Because, I mean, you don't want to necessarily reward someone who's shitter at a job. But equally, you don't want to... I mean, it's kind of like the... the you don't want to tax someone that works really hard as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. don't want to penalize hard work, but also you don't want to let someone who can't work as hard live in abject poverty just because they were born yep. slightly slower. That's not fair either. Yep. If we're trying to go for a compassionate society, right? Yeah. Yep. So you've got to balance this kind of like... It's kind of a very like left, right, left, left and right political mm. kind of dichotomy. Yeah. Like fluctuation. Of like the right wants... The right is very concerned about what would you, the left is, let's say the left, the left is very concerned about the downtrodden. And that's always mm. been the, the domain mm. of the left. Yeah. Yep. It's always been try and bring people out of suffering. Yeah, suffering. Right? And yeah. the right has always been about, or generally is about, uh, like, holding back? Sell, I wouldn't say holding back. They're a lot more rigid in what they want to do, but they're a lot more about, like, work hard. Mm. work hard mm. and you will achieve what you want and the left is very much there's lots of people that can't work as hard as you and we can't just leave them to a life of right. abject poverty we need to actually help these kind of people yeah. so yeah. it's balancing these two things and neither side is fully right mm. if you yeah. just spend your time helping people get out of poverty yeah. and you give everybody equal stuff yeah. Yeah. then it people lose the motivation to work yes. which yes. is bad yes. but equally yeah. if you say oh well okay. too bad you were born with a bad leg fuck you yeah like yeah. <laughs> It's just as bad. <laughs> it's just as, you can't yeah. do that. You'll end up with a horribly you unequal. Need to balance. So, so yeah, you need to balance those two, those yeah. two sides. So it's very much, mm. I think, about balancing those interests because neither side has it perfectly correct, mm -hmm. and both sides are very important for the balance of your political yeah. discourse. And if one side gets too much influence, it's very, very bad. Right. I th well, that's my perspective. I mean, some people would say you need really many more leftists, and some people would say we need to go for an extremely solidified right-wing right. society and you can see that all over the world in different right. like i mean like hungary and poland are very much going for this right-wing yeah. nationalist nationalistic yeah. kind of stuff and you see the left in like sweden yeah. is a good example yeah are really going for this other side and i think both of them are they're probably both in for a terrible time in the long term if they mm. don't moderate themselves mm. right but i mean politically i'm very much in the center so that's exactly what i would say right i mean don't i mean don't get me wrong i'm very much sensitive to the lefts, the left and the right. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, like, I mean, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you need that balance. I think. Would you say, well, if, if let's say we were to strike that balance, right? And mm. everybody was able to, capable of living, you know, a balanced life, mm. that the level of comfort would increase. And as the level of comfort increases, then your population would rise and you go back to that cycle again. Probably. It's quite I likely. Think that, I think that, a lot of governments don't want to do it because it would take a huge amount of money. But I think right. if you increase, like for instance, if you make education, whether it's practical or not, it's something else mm. entirely, right? Mm -hmm. If you make education free and if everybody has a decent living wage and everybody can afford a house, yeah. your population would probably go back to something approaching replacement and you'd probably yep. reach stability. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But you've got to spend a lot of money. And whether right. the amount of money you have to spend is more than the money you would get from that increase in children yeah. is something else. If you're Japan, you might want to start doing that because yep. they don't seem very interested in importing yeah. foreigners. Yeah. I mean, the, the alternative to that, which is much more heartless, yeah. is that you do what Shinzo Abe in Japan is suggesting mm. and you import people, but you don't let them stay long term. 
So you come and give us the best years of your life. 20 to 50 and then get lost. Yeah. <laughs> and you fueled our society and we've taxed you and you've used, yep. we've used that to pay for our social safety net. Yeah. But you can fuck off afterwards. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I mean, man, if you're a pragmatist and you're a xenophobe, yeah. absolutely, like, yeah. you couldn't think of a better system. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it depends what, what values you have, I mm. guess. Like, mm-hmm. for somewhere like uh, Australia, for instance, is much less concerned with this maintaining some kind of homogenous society, right? Yep. I think, I mean, there's plenty of people that want a homogenous society and we call them white nationalists, but there's, <laughs> I mean, and they're not necessarily the most pleasant people, but we're, I mean, think generally we're quite happy with a heterogeneous yeah. kind of mixed multicultural society yeah. for better or worse kind mm. of thing. And I mean, it depends mm. what your political outlook is, but yeah. that's kind of okay. I don't know how that'll work in the long term. Yeah. By which I mean, if you don't make, if you don't leech off people's best years and then send them home, mm-hmm. you're going to have a very hard time maintaining your social safety net yep. or yep. expanding it anyway yep. mm. because your population is growing. Yep. But the amount you have per person is not growing. Yeah. So it's simply that you've got to provide more yes. with the same amount of resource. Like the, it just doesn't like make sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like you've got the same amount of money going in so you're not actually able to expand the social safety net you can keep it at the same level it's just you're giving it to more people yeah which is potentially good it depends if you want to expand mm. it or not mm. it doesn't also factor in the human capacity for war greed. yeah so i mean and that's greed. A, yeah. although war is not necessarily always a bad thing right so if you want to think about Ooh. so Ooh. yeah it's kind of a like out of left field idea but I mean, war is terrible, right? War yep. is suffering and war is depravity and war is pain and bloodshed. Yep. yep. But if you're concerned with leveling the economic playing field, war is one of the only things we know that does it. There are kind of two or three things that do it. War is one and famine and pestilence hmm. are kind of the three right. things that it's almost sounding like the horsemen. The horsemen. <laughs> <laughs> but those particular things, those three things hmm. seem to be the only things that level the economic playing field because everybody goes back to nothing. So it doesn't matter if you've got a billion dollars or you've got $10. Hmm. By the end of a really terrible war, you all have nothing. You're the same. Yeah. So you're all on the same economic <laughs> playing field, which is zero. Mm. Right. And then you'll have the classes will re-stratify themselves. Yes. But yep. we don't know any way without those one of those three things or in combination to re-level the playing field. Mm. So if you leave it and your society stagnates in that you have none of these things, not that that's a bad thing. Well, it depends how you look at it. Yeah. You'll end up with a, lot of, a, f- a small number of very rich people and a lot of very poor people. Yep. Right. Unless you have very progressive taxation and very careful handling of that kind of thing. And even then, you just slow it down majorly. But it'll mm. still happen. You still have this concentration of wealth. Right. But I mean, it depends what you're into. If you want a non communist way of non <laughs> kind of greatly or non, non great proletariat cultural revolutionary kind of way of leveling the playing field, those are the only ways we know of yeah. to mm. do it kind of thing. So, I mean, it's maybe not bad if you want to level the playing field. That's a horrible way to do it. Where do you think we are? How close do you think we are? To what? Th- war? Yeah. <laughs> Singapore's not close to war at all. Singapore mm. will survive no matter. I mean, like, Singapore has a shockingly effective government in maintaining, uh, like, the. I mean, it's because it's a one, I mean, it's, it's essentially one, one party, party that stays yeah. in yeah. for a very long time. Japan has the same thing, mm-hmm. although they're, 
they've been the, around much longer though. Pardon? Uh, Japan has been around much longer. Just in terms of the but the government. democratic system in Japan has been around the same time as Singapore almost. Oh. Like the Americans based like I mean they had the imperial system right. Mm. The Meiji the Meiji restoration happened in nineteen sixty eight and then you have this imperial rule all the way until nineteen forty five. The Americans come into town and they basically say Sorry, we're not doing this anymore. We'll rewrite your constitution for you and then we'll basically force you to pass it. Yeah. Which I actually think was an, a tremendous, tremendously good thing because mm. for a time, Japan actually had better rights for women than America. Right. Even, and the Americans mm. wrote their constitution. So it was better protections for women in Japan than in the country that wrote their constitution. So, I mean, it was a very progressive, very good constitution. And they basically said, you're going to do this. So from like kind of the mid, the late 40s. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Singapore's kind of had independence since kind of the 60s as yeah. it really got yeah. going. So I mean, it's a reasonably similar amount of time. Yeah, Japan does sometimes have an opposition that does get majority, but it doesn't last very long. Mm -hmm. But I mean, both of those are like good examples of that. But I mean, because it has one, essentially one party that's never loses an election. Mm it means that you don't worry about your opposition spending the money you saved. Like in mm. Australia, we have the opposite problem of like, yeah. maybe the Labour Party saves some money and then the Liberal Party will spend it and vice versa. So they don't want to save too much money because then their opposition will spend it and say, oh, look, I'm helping you. Yeah. Meanwhile, it was, we were the ones that saved it. Yeah. And you're spending all the money that we kind of ferreted away. Yep. Or like squirreled away kind of thing. As far as like, yeah, Singapore will survive a war probably because you have yeah. like tremendous cash reserves to burn through like yeah. it's unfathomable <laughs> amounts of money yeah, yeah I want and Singapore I will declare neutrality instantly I think <laughs> yeah which is fine yeah great yeah. do a Switzerland and if you've got everybody's money all the better yeah mm -hmm. nobody wants to like shit where they eat right yeah fabulous <laughs> whether we're close to war I don't know have you heard of Thucydides trap explain no, what's that? What is that so Thucydides trap is kind of this idea that as powers rise and powers fall, it almost always leads to conflict. So as a great power declines and a new power rises, the great power doesn't want to cede control or authority to the new power. Yeah. And so you're stuck in this thing called Thucydides' trap, which is like, one, the declining power worries that the great power will attack them, mm. and the rising power worries that the great power, the the preeminent power will attack them mm. and so one strikes first preemptively yeah. to try and stop being attacked yeah. and creates this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of yeah so i mean china and america are very yeah. close yeah. to yeah. thucydides <laughs> trap yeah i would say mm. um is this this is not and a it's happened science, a lot of times this is not a science term right this is more like an observation so it's based on like a, a thing that happened in greece which was like one mm. power was rising and one power was falling and yeah led a great war. And you see it a lot yeah. of times. So like I saw a, there was a political scientist in the US who has been pushing this a lot recently. And he came up with like 16 different examples. And in like 12 or so out of the 16, it led to war. Wow. Which wow. is a pretty high oh. proportion. Yeah. So you see it with like uh, Imperial Germany under the Kaiser. And then you see it with Nazi Germany under Hitler. Mm -hmm. And you see it in the French and mm -hmm. the... Um, uh, the French and the British. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, you see it almost happen, almost happen in the Soviets versus the United States. Oh, yep. yeah, the Cold War. One of the few times that it didn't happen is when Britain fell and America rose. 
right? Because the empire of Britain was mm. once much more powerful than the United yes. States. And he kind of attributes that to the fact that they're culturally very similar. Mm. So it wasn't too much of a worry because they were both democratic yep. yeah. and they were both predominantly Christian at the time. Yep. Yeah. And they were predominantly one race kind of thing. Yes. So yeah. it wasn't the, as much of the racist element that you often get of like uh, one country being like, oh, we can't let that inferior group yep. possibly right. overtake us. Let's yeah. stop yeah. them kind of thing. Yeah. But I mean, and Japan and the United States was another example of one power rising mm. and not wanting to give control. So I mean, whether it happens with China and America is something else. I oh, suspect it probably will happen. Yeah. China looks yeah. very keen to take Taiwan. And America has a, or the United States has a treaty relationship with Taiwan. Yeah. In the case of China attacking, America is treaty bound to defend Taiwan. Mm. And if America doesn't, they have other treaties with Japan. America has other treaties with Japan, South Korea, and Australia. Mm. So they'll be very concerned if we all see America won't stand up for Taiwan. Yeah. We're not going to take those treaties very seriously. Yep. No. Yeah. So America has to prove that it's. So good good on its word. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't want to lose Taiwan because Taiwan's a big... Man, I love Taiwan. Beautiful. <laughs> I mean, it's gone through so much. It's gone through this horrible dictatorship, essentially under the KMT. Yeah. Not that yep. the KMT's yep. gone, but yep. under Chiang Kai-shek. Yep. Yeah. And now it's flourishing. Like, it's a beautiful democracy mm-hmm. yep. that's, like, very, very effective as far as democracies go. Yeah. Yeah. I would hate to see that lost. And people often trot out this idea. They say, like, in Russia, the Russians need a czar, right? And they've continuously had more or less autocrats, right? And whether yeah. it's Stalin or whether it's Tsar Nikolai II or whether it's Khrushchev or Brezhnev yep. or yeah. Yeltsin or Putin, doesn't matter. They always have a czar. And people yeah. point to that and they say, oh, the Russians can't possibly deal without having some kind of autocrat. A lot of people point to China and they say, oh, the Chinese people have this inherent characteristic of they can't handle not having... An emperor. They need an emperor. <laughs> and then you yeah. look at Hong Kong and you look at Taiwan. And it's like, well, there's your like majority Han Chinese populations doing yeah. perfectly well with, yep. especially Taiwan, with this flourishing, fantastic, best democracy in Asia, most vibrant, most responsive, reactive, unsolidified democracy in Asia. Yeah. It's like, of course, the Chinese people. Like anybody that doesn't <laughs> see that is not looking, kind of thing. So they're excuse. a beautiful example of like the road China could have taken mm-hmm. if yeah. they hadn't have gone for totalitarianism mm. so it's yeah i would hate to see it i mean my partner's also taiwanese so i'm slightly <laughs> but biased eh? yeah i'm quite biased but yeah i mean yeah so i would hate to see it happen but i suspect it, it we may get closer we we may be not as close as we will get to war mm. or i mean china and america will get to war. australia mm. will be called up because we're treaty allies. It could be yeah. said that whatever's happening now in, in current events now, like between America and China, it's like an economic Cold War. Yeah, oh, very much so. A lot yeah. of people are talking about this as a new Cold War. Yeah. And I think that's a pretty good analogy. And yeah. it's it'll play out very different to the last Cold War, right? Because yeah. the Soviets never had the economic Upper leverage, yeah, leverage that China no, does. Word, yeah. Like they didn't focus... The, the market yeah. economy is the way to go if you want to get rich. Yeah. And like state-guided... Yeah economies yeah. are not very reflexive, mm. especially mm. for consumable goods. Mm. But, yeah, China, like, the US has never faced an, an enemy, let's say. A lot of them think of them as an enemy. Or, yeah. what do they say, competitive rival yeah. is the term going around <laughs> in a lot of the diplomatic literature. It's a literature. PC term. It's such yeah, a nice right? term, yeah. This yeah. kind of, they've never had someone this strong. Yeah. yeah. And with this kind of will. I mean, like, Stalin had a pretty serious will, but, I mean... 
Xi Jinping is very, very politically savvy. Yeah. Yeah. He's, oh, I mean, as far as an autocrat goes, he's like incredibly talented, very successful. I was listening to something someone when you're talking about the, the political climate between US and China. Mm. They were saying something along the lines where in China you can play the long game because it's mostly one party. They can play yeah. like 10, uh, they can play like a, a decade, two decades, but in America, they're playing like to a maximum of eight years. Mm. And just in that sense, when you think about it, the strategy you can enact in, in a decade or two decades from now, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Just outlast. Yeah. You get outlast. The, you've, the also people, got to, really. you've also got to remember that, I mean, that this idea of deep state gets thrown around a lot. What's that? So deep state is this idea of like this embedded political machine within the state that has an agenda that much like China has this like playing this long game mm. kind of thing. And it's sometimes, I mean, in the conspiracy theorists will say it's a very embedded, very uh, articulated, well-articulated kind of collection of people, right? And if you're a little bit more realistic, yeah. you can think of it more as every time there's a new election, they don't get rid of all the bureaucrats. So, I mean, as far as your, like, advisors, they all basically stay the same. Like, I <laughs> yeah. mean, at lower levels anyway. Yep. Yep. So, like, your national security advisors are people that have been in the government mm. for, like, decades. Yep. And you still see, like, there's lots of people that were in the U.S., in the, like, State Department and the Pentagon, yeah. like, yeah. from the time of the Cold War, and they're still there. It's, it's not like they're disappearing. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. And, I mean, for better or worse, I mean, at least you get very talented people because they've cut their teeth for, like, yep. decades on yeah. Yeah. foreign policy. So, they're really good people so I, th I think there's not as much transience or like it, foreign policy in the United States is not as ephemeral as you might expect mm. simply because there's so many of the main the, the bureaucratic machine stays the same basically so you get slight changes in policy from the top yep yeah but at the end of the day Trump's and Obama are not really foreign policy guys they're not big on the foreign i mean like they do foreign policy but i mean they're not experts so they're basically taking advice and they act on yep. the advice from advisors yeah. yeah and the advice comes up the chain from the pentagon or wherever yeah and they do exactly what a head of state is supposed to do and they listen to their advisors makes sense yeah. yeah kind of thing so it's not changing that much i mean obama basically had to like bush went into the middle east and did what bush senior had done yep. years before and then they realized that Asia was the next big theater because it's growing economically. So they did this thing called the pivot. And it's basically under Obama, he'd inherited this like Middle East problem <laughs> from the previous administration. Yeah, he basically yeah. said, okay, we need to start moving out of the Middle East very, very quickly, but not so quickly that we destabilize the whole thing. Yeah. And we need to go to Asia because that's the new theater of conflict for the 21st century. Theater, interesting. And Trump's done exactly the same thing. He's kept the pivots still going. He's moving out of the Middle East. So, I mean, as far as like very uh, grainy kind of like high level stuff. They're kind of doing the same, more or less the same kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. Very similar stuff. Move to Asia, engage with the Asian economies, find allies, mm. target your enemies. Kind of, and the next president, whoever it is, whether it's Trump for another four years, which it probably will be, mm -hmm. I suspect. Or whether you get like, Andrew Yang or Pete Buttigieg or Joe Biden or whoever, uh, whoever, yeah. they'll continue the pivot and they will continue to focus on Asia and the broader foreign policy will not change very much. Mm. Right. So it's, I don't know, I think they can play the long game as well. Just like China, they just don't have as much 
top-down control, mm. which yeah. is arguably more effective, I would say. Top-down control? If, no, no, no. Bottom-up control. So if you have it coming from the bureaucrats, it's much more effective. You yeah. look at like the Soviet Union or you look at Nazi Germany and you have these all like uh, fascist Italy under Mussolini yeah. and you have these autocrats that basically don't vet a lot of their ideas through a lot of other people. So mm. if you make a mistake, no one's going to pick it up, right? Okay. Or they'll okay. be too scared of you to pick it up. Yeah. So you might like try and attack Russia during the winter <laughs> and you're <laughs> fucked because nobody said like, it's a bad you, <laughs> have you read Napoleon kind of thing? Do you know what happens when you do this? Whereas when you've got like a complex, more democratic state, there's always going to be someone that pipes up and says, hey guys, <laughs> this is a dumb idea. Let's not do this. <laughs> Which is, I think, more effective. So it's slower it's and it's more chaotic. Mm. Yeah. But you have much more of a capacity to weed out very dumb ideas. Yeah. Right. And in these kind of more top-down totalitarian states, they never have that. So the Soviet Union yeah. made all sorts of blunders yeah. because nobody said, yep. hey, Khrushchev, let's <laughs> not put missiles in kind of Cuba or something or like yeah. whatever mm. kind of thing. I mean, argue, I mean on, on the Cuban Missile Crisis, I blame America because they shouldn't have put Jupiter missiles in Turkey, but they started that's it. That's another story. <laughs> but that's another story. But yeah, yeah I don't know. The world in, will be very interesting, I think, for the next few decades. In your lifetime. In our lifetime. In our lifetime. <laughs> in, in your study of parasites mm. and ticks and everything, do mm. you notice patterns within your field of study and when, when you look at the world, do you notice the same patterns? Broader world. Mm. Yeah. In your field of study, you notice this and that. And when, when, you when, mean when like you look fine at scale or broad scale? Like when I see like... I mean, one thing that I'd say in my field, this is probably more broad scale, but I see a much greater democratization of science. Lots of more people are contributing to science and it's not as much of an ivory tower as it once was. Okay. And I see that broader pattern in the rest of the world as well. So, like, I mean, you can do this, right? Like, previously, audio communication, like, audio media was the domain of radio yeah. And there was only so many channels that you could have. And they pick and choose and who have, gets yeah. to talk. Yeah. That's it, very much so. And you have this very top-down control of a mm. very small number of people that say, okay, you can go on and we're barring him or we're barring her. Anyone can record something and they can talk to the world. Yeah. You can spread your ideas beautifully. And it's the same with science. We're getting all sorts of people from all sorts of countries that can engage and contribute. And we're so much the better for it. Mm. And it's the same with media. The more voices you have, very much the better. And yes, you'll get some trash in there and there'll be some people <laughs> saying the earth's flat. <laughs> but at least you have the option of someone saying it because yeah. if you're going to find an idea, if you have a thousand to pick from, it's much better than if you have ten. That is right. true. Because the chances that you'll get a good one, yeah, much, yeah. much higher. But you need to have the, the, I won't say intelligence, but you need to have the, to be perceptive about it, isn't it? Because there's so many voices now. And it's... Yeah, you need bullshit detector. Yeah. <laughs> you need yeah. to like, and when a lot of people aren't so good at that. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, especially our parents' generation, mm. not to rip on boomers, because I know it's very trendy at the moment, <laughs> but not to rip on boomers, but for people that always said, don't believe everything you hear, I get a surprising number of weird links sent to me from parents or relatives. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, did you know that avocados cause cancer or something? From like <laughs> nature news, yeah. woofuckery.com or something. Yeah, yeah. And I think they maybe need to develop their like bullshit detector a little bit more but I think our age group is getting somewhat better but I think the foundation of a good functioning society is you need a lot of people with bullshit detectors mm. so you need yeah. people to be very very critical thinkers skeptical very skeptical yeah. incredibly skeptical yeah mm. and yeah very very critical yeah 
of I don't mean that in like just shit talk everything. I just mean like you need to be a very good critical thinker, mm-hmm. yeah, and very skeptical, that kind of stuff. And mm. I think that's going to be increasingly important, especially as this kind of like media, the democratization buffet, really. of media, yeah, yeah this buffet yeah. of democratized media yeah. means that echo chambers can form much more easily than they used to. Mm. Yeah. So you've got to be very careful. The populace has to be very careful about yeah. what they believe, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, even at like large scales, like China can say anything about what's happening in Hong Kong and they can say these people are. Yes. I mean, whatever yeah. you believe about, and they're a mixed bunch anyway. And equally yeah. in the United States, you can have the president say this kind of thing and anybody can believe it, whether it's true or not. Yes. So it's yeah. very, very... Mm. And then there's like wacky the earth is flat kind of people. They do make a convincing argument though. Have you watched Which? any of those videos? Oh the yeah, that's that's <laughs> I think because of the they format. They play a lot of mental gymnastics <laughs> yeah. to try and get around. That's, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a, a case study in it's like how creative <laughs> people can be, I think. The power of film. Huh? The, the power, power of film. film. And objective reality, really. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Perception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think reality is becoming a lot more malleable than it was mm. yeah. 20 years ago, let's say. Is, yeah. is nature like that, though, from, from your studies and everything? I think, that, I think that nature is... I think the way that we conceptualize a lot of nature is very foolish. How so? I think humans... It's very understandable why we do this, and it's very natural. Instinct, almost. A natural just f- form of cognition. Mm-hmm. We, the way that we categorize things, I think, is our desire to categorize things on one hand is very important right because you need to categorize things so that you can form little blocks of information about them species a and i know all these things about it yep yeah but when you look at nature more broadly it's i mean i'm kind of a heretic for saying this kind of thing but nature is not like that at all so like one like take so i do a lot of taxonomy like species discovery and description and stuff yep Mm. delineation and i mean when i say a species you say okay they're obvious to spot, right? Like a cat is different from a dog. Yes. Mm. Mm. But, I mean, I personally, and I disagree with a lot of zoologists yeah. have big problems with me when I say this, but I don't believe in species. Okay. Okay. So from a pragmatic point of view, we need species because mm. you can't just say that it's a, a mucky, mucky pile of biodiversity. But if you look at it from, I think, a very objective point of view it's like saying you have a, a color palette and you have pink and purple and you mix them together and where does pink stop and purple start right mm-hmm. so yeah. you have these species are very poorly difficult to define sometimes especially yeah. if you think of them <laughs> sorry to get too abstract here but so a species is like an entity hurtling through time so there are multiple po- like a population that has so i mean you think of humans when did we become humans where do right. you draw the line Mm. Yeah, because I mean, if we want to do it from a like discrete species point of view, at some point you're going to have to say that his grandpa was this species and his grandson was this species. Mm. Yeah, right. Yeah, because you have to draw a line yes. somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, the grandfather and the grandson are probably a lot more close together than that grandson is from me ten thousand years later. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yep. So this idea yep. of like discrete boxes mm. is very problematic i think if you want to look at it from a very objective okay point of view so i mean species is a good example of something where if you want to look at it from a perspective of species hurtling through time Mm. over thousands or millions of years 
species cease to exist and you have this kind of gradual, malleable, gradually changing things. Mm. So, I mean, like... So, titles would change as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of... Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like... Between, like, both of us, all of us here, mm-hmm. have a direct um, ancestry to yep. some sort of small mammal that was yeah. living 300 million years ago or something like that. Yeah. Sure. Kind of thing. And it's unbroken. Yeah. Like, none of our ancestors that gave rise to us Okay. There's never been a break in the link. Mm-hmm. And where do you want to draw the line of when one species starts and another? Yep. So that kind of thing. Okay. So that's not object- and I mean with ecosystems as well. Like where does one ecosystem stop and another start? And it's maybe yeah. kind of easy yeah. for a mangrove right when it gets to the shore. There's still species moving in between and stuff. So mm. yep. we need boxes around things, but I don't think that they're a very objective. Okay. Uh, I don't think they're an objective way to look at nature. I think they're a necessary way to look at nature, a very pragmatic way, mm-hmm. but they're not necessary. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, yeah. So I don't think it's as, not nearly as uh, static mm. or discreet. Yeah. It, it as changes as well. Yeah, I think static yeah. is a good word too. Yeah. 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 Does it have anything to do with the similarities of um, like certain mammals in the gestation period? Mm-hmm. They really look the same. Like, expand uh, on that. Like, Play with um, that. Like when a, a mother has like a fetus growing inside mm. of her when mm. she's pregnant. Mm. Um, the, the little like fetuses look mm. really similar at the start. Oh, okay. So it's and this idea. They, yeah, as they go through the gestation, they start yeah, to yeah, yeah. develop biological so it's this, differences. So, they, so some people have described it. There's a term for it. They say ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. <laughs> so it means that... <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, I know that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, was saying, I was waiting for you to get to that. <laughs> what, what, what is so that? it means that if you look at, I mean, it's kind of defunct now, but it's kind of plays on this idea of ontogeny. So your development, mm. you can use that. Or the idea was that you could use that to try and uh, predict when things are diversified. So you could look at the embryo of a person and a pig and a dog and a monkey. Yeah. And based on how similar they were at that, larval kind of stage, mm-hmm. that very immature stage, you yeah. could use that to try and predict who is related to who because you gradually have this change and because often you have, yeah. the reason it happens is because you have less selection pressure at that stage because right. it's when you're an embryo, all the embryos are basically being treated the same inside mum, mm. yep. right? So there's not things that are selecting them to have big ears or mm. long feet or it's something. Not genetic. So there's, they're much more constrained. So there's been much yeah. less selection and drift in yeah. these things so they've all stayed on this kind of central form because they haven't needed to change mm. yeah kind of thing which is i don't know kind of yeah well that's why they all kind of look the same right or, oh. yeah that's really cool yeah how would our biology and our larger ecosystem look like without parasites do you have any uh, idea probably wouldn't exist i huh. mean if you got rid of all the parasites the ecosystem would collapse okay and i mean if you want to use that more broadly yeah I mean, you'd have to get rid of a huge number of... Well, all the viruses would go. So mm-hmm. that would be disastrous. That would be disastrous. Disastrous, right. So, I mean, viruses are, like, kind of horrible. But yes. they're very, very important. So, I mean, a huge amount of our genetic diversity comes from viruses. What do you mean genetic diversity? <clears throat> so, I mean, people are... I mean, to, to frame it somewhat... Yeah. People are... 
very concerned about genetic technology, right? Genetic modification. Because yep. they say, oh, you're moving genes in and, in and out of organisms yeah. and it's unnatural. Viruses do that all the time. A huge number of our genes come from viruses. So the virus, when a virus wants to go dormant and hide from the immune system, it'll go into a cell, some viruses, unravel its, its, Court. its code, yeah. its cookbook, and it'll put it into our cookbook and hide away. <laughs> and then sometimes it can unravel its cookbook wow. back out of our genome and it can start recreating itself again. What? But sometimes it doesn't always come out of our cookbook again and we get left with some of its recipes. Yeah. Like, do you have any or sometimes books? when it comes out of, our yeah. gene, out of our recipe book, it'll take some of our recipes with it. Huh. And so viruses jumping between organisms move genes all over the place. Uh-huh. We call this this like horizontal gene transfer. So it can move between organisms. So you can have genes from a cow go into genes of a rattlesnake or something. Yeah. And it's not like it happens hugely often, but I mean, all you have to do is happen a few times. Mm. And think of how many viruses are and think of how many humans there are or any organism for that matter. Mm. So they move, they're responsible for a lot of genetic diversity in all sorts oh. of organisms or organisms getting useful genes to do useful things. They may not have been able to mutate into reality on their own. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, if we lost that, it's like you lose one of the major sources of genetic diversity in organisms, things are going to be much more challenged to adapt to changing circumstances, wow. changing climates, changing habitats. And if you, like, say, take all the parasitic worms, a lot of them actually have useful jobs. So in humans, a really good example of this is we actually, a lot of humans probably need hookworms. Huh? Hookworms are very okay. nasty. <laughs> yeah. You don't want them in huge numbers or you get anemia where you have very low red blood cell count. Yeah. yeah. And then you have real troubles. <laughs> but, uh, so one scientist was looking at autoimmune diseases mm. and allergies and things. And she went to a little town in a little, some little place in Africa. Right. And she, I think she was on holiday or something. Yeah. And she noticed that none of the kids had asthma. And she thought, that's funny. And they're all playing in the dirt. And then somehow she came to the conclusion or she came to this idea, this hypothesis, this just little idea. She thought maybe it's because they actually play in filth that they don't get sick. And all the kids that I see in the developed nations that are sick are living in these like bubbles, yeah. these clean houses and mum wipes the floor down every day and yeah. they can't touch the dog because the dog's dirty. And so they never get exposed to any pathogens. And so their immune system never learns how to essentially fight. Yeah. So it's like if you send your immune system to the dojo every week and it gets to fight someone, it gets really good at fighting and it learns how to fight the right way. It learns how to recognize an enemy and take on that enemy very quickly. Yeah. Whereas if you've like, for the sake of you might get hurt if you go to the dojo. Yep. Mm. So you're just going to stay home all the time. Yep. You are not a very good fighter. Mm. Yeah. So essentially we need these challenges. And mm. so one way that they've started trying to treat some of these <clears throat> autoimmune diseases yep. is they actually infect people with hookworms. Right. And the hookworms being inside you means that your immune system is constantly being challenged by these worms. Mm -hmm. So it's constantly mounting an attack. So it actually teaches it to relax its attack yeah. and focus much more specifically rather than seeing anything mm. and being like, oh, maybe that's an enemy. Let's get that thing. Mm. Yeah. So it learns, oh, this is actually a real enemy. Turns out that thing, that protein that I produce naturally that has a useful purpose in me isn't actually an enemy. So I'm not going to attack that anymore. Okay, yeah. I get it. I get it. That's like the fundamental basis of antibiotics though. Hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, antibiotics. So, it's kind of, oh, it's like the foundation of vaccination. Mm, right. Yeah. So, you're showing it, here's something, here's a, real, here's a challenge. So, you're yeah. ready when the real challenge comes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
So, I mean, they're, they're very useful and they clearly have benefits for our health. Definitely. Um, and certainly for the genetic diversity of your ecosystem. And if you want, for instance, if you want uh, a planet of organisms that need to adapt to, say, climate change, uh-huh. if you get rid of all the viruses, ooh, your ability to adapt is massively decreased because you won't have these funky genes coming in from all over the place, potentially giving you useful adaptations. Mm. Yeah. It yeah. sounds like a page straight out of science fiction. I mean... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gee. No, the natural world is much more bizarre and complicated than we ever realized. Is it under yeah. the surface, though? Mm. Okay. A lot of it's quite unseen. Yeah. And then when you take the time to look, it's very... It's incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And it's very... <laughs> it sounds incredibly misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. much so. So it's... Yeah. Yeah, complicated and messy and not at all like you'd expect in a 1950s textbook of... Yeah. But just as beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think more beautiful. The more Therein you lies understand the beauty. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. So, talking about um, passing genome and passing stuff from one species to another, mm. could parasites potentially affect human evolution? Oh, they have. How so? Very much so. Uh-huh. So, I mean, one... There's... Mm, there's lots of ideas, but I mean, one idea in like human, like physical anthropology is that one of the reasons that they propose why we are hairless uh-huh. is parasites. They suggested that um, we've lost our hair to try and rid ourselves of parasites and that we've been specifically selected because the more hairy you are, the more parasites can hide mm. and avoid being groomed off. Yep, yep. So they suggest that maybe we've been selected to be more hairless because the parasites have have been a real problem, Mm. right? And potentially men haven't been selected quite as highly because, I mean, in traditional uh, hunter-gatherer situations, in a lot of cases, it seems, a lot of the men were out hunting kind of things while the women were doing a lot of gathering, which is just as important, but you're not necessarily as exposed to the elements as much if you're crouched down picking berries as if you're chasing a deer or something, right? So we've probably kept a little bit of hair for thermoregulation just so we stay a bit warmer. Mm. I mean, there's lots of other hypotheses, but I mean, that's one example. And then there's other things like, I mean, if you want a really good example of parasites at a micro level or a very specific level, altering human evolution, in Africa, there's lots of places where sickle cell anemia is still very common in okay. developed countries. So sickle cell anemia is a um, <clears throat> genetic disease wherein you grow your, your blood cells are normally round and they carry oxygen, but in sickle cell, they kind of have these moon-shaped, these crescent moon-shaped shapes. And they can't carry blood almost at all. And so very often you die. Mm. So if you have the two recessive alleles, you get sickle cells and you basically die Mm -hmm. because you can't carry oxygen. If you get neither of the recessive alleles, you have normal blood. And if you get uh, one allele one uh, recessive allele and one dominant allele, Mm. you get some sickle cells and you get some normal cells. So you can actually survive as a heterozygote. So when you get malaria, which needs blood cells, malaria kills off most of the people that have pure good blood cells. So the dominant non-recessive allele Mm. because they can invade all the blood cells are perfect. Mm -hmm. However, when individuals have the sickle cells, often the malarial parasites will spend a lot of time going into these faulty blood cells and not reproducing very well. So often the people with sickle cell anemia stand up to malaria much better. So all the people with the normal blood cells are getting selected against, (laughs) they're getting killed. The people with the sickle cell anemia are actually surviving a lot of times 
and reproducing. So they maintain this sickle cell anemia allele, which normally kills you yeah. or gets weeded out of the population really quickly yeah. because malaria is, pr it's a protection against malaria. That is so interesting. That is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's mad. So it's, I mean, when people talk about, I often hear this from like white nationalists and stuff. They talk about like, inferior genes and they're very concerned with genetic purity mm. and they say like oh why would you keep people alive that have some kind of genetic illness right right and i always say to them well it's always the context of the genetic illness right your adaptations are always based on your environment mm -hmm. and they say like oh we shouldn't keep these people alive that wouldn't survive without medical treatment yeah and it's kind of like well they're not being selected against so there's no problem, is there? Because we've created an environment where they survive perfectly fine. And then potentially they may have all these beautiful genes which one day will be challenged with something and they'll be the only ones that survive mm, and they'll yeah. impart all the beautiful genes onto us and keep yeah. our species going. Yeah. It's like yeah. sickle cell anemia. It's not useful until it's useful, until you're in the environment where suddenly it's selected for and you would have never guessed yeah. until you give people malaria and then, oh, look, someone's got, someone survives much better than yeah. us. So it's all about... We need lots of good genetic diversity. Yeah. And yeah, sure, like nine times out of 10, the genetic illness that someone has probably will kill them and it's probably yeah. detrimental. Yeah. But I mean, if you don't have it and yeah. suddenly yeah. the environment changes, you're buggered. Like mm. your species is cactus. Oh, you need cactus. cactus. Yeah. Fucked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so it's, yeah, no, it's really useful. So they've, yeah, done lots of things to us and yeah. very, very, uh, very useful. And I mean, another... One other thing that they've suggested is in uh, behavioral ecology, there's this idea of um, parasites are important and pathogens are important because they, um, they help us show honest signs of our fitness. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if there are no parasites or pathogens in your population, uh, what's a good example? So, maybe... Uh, <laughs> It's hard, to, it's hard to explain. If you're subjected to parasites, you should probably look worse. Like you, you won't be as big, perhaps, or you won't be as strong because you spent all this time, your body spent all this energy trying to fight off the parasites. Okay. Whereas if you are very good at, if you're like, say, very, very fit and very strong, yeah. probably you've been able to deal with the parasites, so you're healthier stock, yeah. say. And so females or whichever sex in your species invests the most which will be the most choosy because it doesn't want to waste its resources in mm. our case women mm. they see an individual and if the individual looks healthy he's got clean skin he's got yep. clean hair yep. he's not small he's not weak he doesn't have obvious signs of disease it means that he's probably a strong fit male yep. so the parasites are actually helping the females make the best choice because they're challenging the males and the ones that can't okay. handle it show it mm. so they, it's an honest signal so they help maintain this kind of very strong immune system this kind of stuff it's also why you often find that humans love outbreeding 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 so i mean you find that like with the interconnectedness of the world yeah originally one might expect that it's like okay people are going to breed within their race right because they're the people yep. that they're familiar with right yep. but we don't at all yeah we're like humans love outbreeding we love yeah. breeding yeah. with different genetic lines yeah and it's because if you inbreed too much you amplify characteristics and sometimes those recessive alleles in this yeah. case can mm. be very very detrimental so that's why right. you see royal families and they all have like weak chins because they've mm. all been having sex with each other's aunts for so mm. long that everybody's so related yeah right <laughs>
So we breed, we outbreed yeah. because it gives our immune systems more diversity and we get Interesting. better protection against pathogens mm. and parasites. And often you can, there's some really good preliminary kind of studies that indicate that we can actually smell the genetic compatibility or the immune compatibility with other people. Wait, what? Wow. And often, so, so one study they did is they took a bunch of men and they got them to wear a plain white t-shirt uh-huh. and sleep in it overnight. Then they collected all the t-shirts uh-huh. <clears throat> and they gave them to a panel of 60-odd women to smell. And then the women rated how good the t-shirts smelt. Okay. And then they took a genetic profile of the major histocompatibility complexes, which are highly involved in the immune response, of the individuals, and they found that individuals with vast or men with vastly different major histocompatibility complexes to the women that were smelling it, those women typically reported the shirt as smelling much better than the shirts that came from a man that had the same major histocompatibility complexes as the woman. That is a mouthful, so the women okay. could smell a more immunologically ideal mate, essentially, just by smell. That is mad. That is yeah. ridiculous. Which is really good. That is so mad. So it's parasites driving us to be or women to be very choosy about mm. who they pick huh. kind of thing so they've had major major drivers <laughs> on our on our evolution and still to this day do you do, do you think it's possible with with that examples and many examples do you think it's possible for parasites to evolve to exploit gender differences oh yeah i think so okay um well i think gender differences seem to be there definitely are gender differences. Yeah. Or let's say, actually, I wouldn't say gender differences. I would say sex differences. Okay. What's the difference? So, I mean, it depends who you ask. And I'm certainly not a scholar on gender studies. Of course. But, and I would never claim to be. But <laughs> my, let's say, opinion on gender is that gender is how you feel mm-hmm. and sex is what you're born as. Okay. So I'm okay. potentially I'm born a biological male, mm. but per- perhaps, I mean, you can have whatever gender you want. I don't really care. Yeah. It's your business yeah. kind yeah. of thing. Sex seems to, sex seems to have a lot more inbuilt manifestations than gender. Mm. So, I mean, men are generally sluts, mm-hmm. right? We go around and we fuck anything that moves mm-hmm. by and large. Mm-hmm. And if you like, Men are a lot more promiscuous than women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a sex, yeah. that's a sex bias. Mm. Because for a man to be successful evolutionarily, we've been selected that you basically fuck whatever you can get. Yeah. yeah. And then you can run off because you don't need to raise that thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can just leave. The woman, on the other hand, she has to invest nine months and a tremendous amount of resources. And then she might die in childbirth if it's yeah. like pre-1800 yeah. Yeah. or even pre-1900 kind of thing. So she's got to be really, really choosy. So over evolutionary yep. time, women have been highly selected. Yeah to not fuck anything that moves because all the women that did, yeah, a lot of them died in them, yeah. childbirth, yeah. Yeah. potentially, or a huge chunk of them, or they bred with less than fit men and then they ruined their genetic potential, mm. yeah. right? Because maybe their kids weren't as successful, so gradually they were wheedled out through evolutionary time. That's this constant selection, right? Yep. Yep. So I'd say there certainly is sex differences. Gender seems to be a lot more cultural as far as I can see. Mm. So, I mean, depending on what culture you go to, gender can manifest very differently. And there seems to always be this broad male-female gender overlaid sex, but not always. And sometimes you have these things like third sex, like in some ancient, like older Japanese culture they talk about, and sometimes in Chinese culture they talk about like a third sex Mm -hmm. um, of somewhere in between male or female. And we find that in lots of cultures. And then you find all sorts of different 
yes. intermediates, right? Yeah. But it seems that sex is a major, a much more of a driver of behavioral propensity than gender, which seems to be much more driven by culture. Although it does seem to have a sex overlay that it somehow manifests within this, this realm, right? Mm -hmm. But I think for sex, there's, yeah, definitely parasites certainly exploit that. And I think if you went back, if we went back in time and we did a survey of, say, genital lice, so crabs, mm. I reckon they'd be much more prevalent in men than women. And I think that would be a case of men fucking everything yes. that moves. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, you have a higher rate of transmission. Parasites manipulating sex, though, is something quite different, I think. There's some cases of... So, I mean, one good case is there's these zombie beetles in the UK. These, flower, these flower beetles. And they get this fungus that infects them. It kills the male beetle. Oh, sorry, it kills, it kills a beetle. And then it causes their wings to flip open. So they die, they grip onto this stem, and then it causes their wings to flip open. Yeah. And that's a signal to male beetles that the female is fertile and ready to mate. Oh. So the male is basically, it's like, it's essentially like a human, like a very hot woman dying with her legs open <laughs> in a like music festival full of drunk men. Yeah, I get it. That don't give any, so basically these beetles yeah. all come and fuck, fuck this yeah. corpse lady beetle and they all get infected with this fungus <laughs> and then it causes them to go and do the same thing so that's a case of a parasite manipulating that is mad, that is mad. That is yeah so, so mad. like zombie sex beetles <laughs> which is quite a good one that's a i good don't know of anything in humans <laughs> yeah, that do that, that. Zombie, that's a really good band start a band yeah, yeah. called the zombie sex <laughs> beetles sex beetles <laughs> it's ridiculous yeah. so i think in, in a more grounded context i, I was mm. looking into this uh parasite that affects cats oh toxoplasma yeah 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 and that that is one that is actually quite prominent in the population because people deal with cats and yeah like yeah that. i think something like and one in three humans, humans has it and it affects the behavior of of like, these yeah. small rodents and to a larger extent humans so the so i've looked at the i've looked at the literature in reasonable detail on this and it's quite all over the place okay so i remember i went to this Fucking conference Google years ago, and this girl had spent her whole honours year, so a whole year of her life, infecting rats with toxoplasma, <laughs> and then trying to test how brave they were by making them run these acrobatic courses. And she actually found that there was a negative correlation. So the individuals that weren't infected with toxoplasma were more bold. And oh. then you see other studies where the rats will actively, apparently, seek out cat urine yeah. and yeah. stuff. And it's kind of all over the place. I saw one study where they did they tested humans for toxoplasma after they had car accidents to see if people with toxoplasma take more risks. Because mm. okay. presumably if you take more okay. risks, you should have more car accidents. Okay. Yeah. Right? And they found that there was some kind of association that maybe toxoplasma was causing people to have car accidents. Wow. So there's all, I mean, yeah. it's kind of all over the place and I don't think the verdict's out or the, the court is out, mm. rather, the jury's out. God, it took me three times. The jury, <laughs> whether the jury's out on yeah. whether this thing does cause behavioral stuff in humans... It seems to be reasonably robust that it probably causes stuff in rodents and it wouldn't shock me if it causes things in humans because at a neurological level, the kind of basal neurophysiology and anatomy that it's got to exploit is reasonably similar. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of it's like, yeah, a lot of it's, I mean, we certainly have much more 
developed frontal cortexes, right? And a lot of that is to do, a lot of that part of the brain, not that I'm a neuroscientist, but a lot of that is to do with decision-making, decision yeah. Yeah. rational decision-making. Yeah. And I mean, potentially if you impair that, you have a very good chance of manipulating people's behavior. And you can see that in humans. Men don't have our frontal cortexes develop as quickly as women. Mm. So by the time women and men are of the same age, men take many, many more risks mm. because they're less risk averse. <laughs> and so we kill ourselves a lot more, mm. which actually helps because a lot more of us are born than women. Slightly more men are born than women. Right. Interesting. And by about reproductive age, so in our 20s, the yeah. sex ratios equalize mm. because most, a lot of men have killed themselves off making mm. irrational decisions. Irrational. <laughs> and doing stupid things. But yeah, so I mean... Yeah, impair the frontal cortexes, the frontal cortex yeah. <clears throat> and the decision-making, rational decision-making aspect of that. And you can do big things. And yeah, men and women are a beautiful example of <laughs> what happens. I mean, men kill themselves so much more. So would you say that there are a lot more about parasites that we don't know? Mm. So do you think it's, it's possible that we might find a particular strain or particular parasite that actually does affect human behavior? Oh, it wouldn't shock me if Toxoplasma does. Okay. I just haven't seen super robust work. But it's mm. a really hard thing to test, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. behave, I mean, you've got to bring personality into it. Yeah. Because there's lots of people that are quite meek. And there's mm. people that are very outgoing. And yeah. that affects your ability to take risks hugely. Yes. Yeah. So you've got to control for all these kind of personality traits. You've got to control for age. You've got to control for <clears throat> the development of your frontal cortexes. Yeah. Mm. and things so it's man it's a hard thing to test for it's just an yeah. ongoing conversation isn't it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i think yeah. if you can demonstrate it in rodents like it seems pretty pretty well supported it's not mental gymnastics though if it's rodents it affects us then you do that well, i mean a lot of things that affect rodents affect us i mean they're a model system for a reason that they're mm. very similar to us mm. i mean you can do it in rhesus maybe you could do it in rhesus macaques or something even more similar yeah. but i mean if you if it's doing if it's manipulating the same pathway as in us, it's not a terrible jump to say, okay, so it manipulates this pathway that macaques, humans, and rodents all share yeah. in this way, and it can do the same, potentially it can do the same thing in people. It's just using the same... Logic. The same kind of, like, the same kind of yeah, pathway. Mm. So, it's, I mean, it's, I don't think it's as huge a jump as to make, mm. maybe. Mm. So, it wouldn't shock me. I mean... I guess it brings sentience into question, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really yeah, yeah. And how much yeah. are you a backseat driver? Yeah. In your own feminism and <laughs> in all your that own shit. life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> are you really pulling the strings kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Wow. Well, it's interesting. I mean, another thing that I saw recently that I thought was really astounding was they did a study looking at average political persuasion in countries <clears throat> and then looking at the rates of infectious disease. What do you mean by that? So they looked at how prevalent like infectious diseases were in countries and where the average political compass point was. Okay. The mean, wow. the mean political compass point. Yeah. And they found that in countries where there's higher infectious disease, yeah. people lean much more towards the right. And oh. in countries with less infectious disease, people lean much more towards the left. Wow, so many factors. And the behavioral... I mean, whether you want to buy into evolutionary psychology, I don't really buy into it, but... If you want to try and come up with some sort of biological explanation for this, mm. one suggestion is that conservatives are a lot more concerned with uh, borders and boundaries yep. and hygiene. Yep. And I mean hygiene in the sense of 
controlling what comes in and out mm. yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And liberals, progressives are much less concerned with that. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're in a country where there's a lot of infectious disease, you want to be very careful about who comes into your house mm-hmm. or who comes yep. into your community yep. because yep. they could be carrying something. Yep. Yep. Whereas when infectious disease declines, it doesn't really matter, right? Because we can chat and yep. I'm not afraid of catching something. Yep. From, and yep. it's not going to affect the base kind of proclivity towards mm. xenophobia mm. as much as it might if there's a real risk of you. And it's not a conscious thing. It's not like people are actively thinking, oh, he's coming in, he's going to make me sick. It's a much more basal. Right. kind of subconsciously thing it seems but yeah there's parasites potentially That's even ridiculous. altering <laughs> political wow i mean it's not a super st- i mean it's not like there's not a huge amount of evidence it's like one study but it's interesting yeah. kind of thing. but i mean think. it's an interesting hypothesis yeah. yeah and it seems i mean it seems to pass the pub test it sounds like mm, it's kind pu- of a <laughs> it sounds test. reasonably okay it doesn't <laughs> sound logically possible <laughs> after two pints maybe kind of astounding <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 so it's yeah they might have more influence on us than we really think yeah. for better yeah. or worse i don't know mm. Mm. yeah so so in closing i would just like to ask what can we learn from parasites hmm what can we learn from parasites it could be scientific behavioral what what can we as well yeah, individual okay. species learn yeah i think we can learn a lot of things one thing i would say is that we can learn how to heal ourselves from parasites parasites have spent millennia millions of years manipulating our immune systems to mm. avoid detection to avoid mm. being killed right yeah if we want to try and work out how to heal ourselves we have to understand our immune systems and we have to understand how to manipulate our immune systems yes yeah. And I think that if we're ever going to learn it, parasites are the, have spent a billion years perfecting it. That is true. And they've probably got a real nice toolkit that we can utilize for healing ourselves. Yes. So I think that's one thing that we could certainly learn from mm-hmm. parasites. I think that also parasites, in my opinion, can teach us to appreciate the natural world and can teach us to abandon this hierarchical view of the value of living things. In that I think if you can love a parasite, you can love anything. <laughs> kind of and they can kind of teach you that there's absolute beauty and intricacy and mm. stunning diversity in all sorts of things we might overlook. And to me, elephants and pandas are very boring. They're stunning, <laughs> but there's so many more stunning things. Yeah. And the more you look down and you look amongst the weeds, the more you'll see stunning things. So I think parasites can definitely teach us to appreciate the natural world. Yeah. Mm and to appreciate its intricacy, diversity, and how it's much more complex than we might, might think, mm. right. I think. Th- those are my takeaways. Heal, heal humanity <laughs> and appreciate the natural world. And those are kind of my, well, amongst many other things, those are kind of underlying philosophies for me of treat the environment well, mm-hmm. leave it better than you found it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that we should also be trying to make human life <laughs> more bearable bearable <laughs> more <laughs> we should be trying to lift people out of poverty we should be uh aiming to make the average person's life better mm. yeah. less less suffering okay in mm. the world okay make mm. every do something to make it leave the planet with people better off than they were when you found it and the environment better off than you were right. when they found it whether you can balance those two things is something else yeah yes but those are kind of i don't know I think if you can do those two things, the world will be maybe a better place. 
Make the world a better place. <laughs> it's quite cliched, right? It's not very. Oh. But it's it's it's, it's, it's poignant. It's, yeah, poignant is the word. No, I don't yeah. know. Maybe people have said it too much, but is, is there maybe if enough people say it, it might be true. It might stick. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, it sticks. <laughs> is there anything you would like to share in, before we close? Yeah. Oh, I don't know, really. Well, if you do want to follow me, I do have a Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't do a cheeky... What is it? A oh, plug? Please, yeah. So please if, you, if you do want to follow my Facebook page, it's Mackenzie Kwok Parasitologist on Facebook. How do, how do you spell it? Mackenzie? So M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E-K-W-A-K dash, little dash, Parasitologist. P-A-R-A-S... <laughs> something parasitologist I-T-O-L-O-G-I-S-T yeah. I hope that's yeah. right that sounds yeah. right it's very hard to spell things when you can't see the words <laughs> <laughs> we've been conditioned to yeah. to yeah too well yes but yeah on Facebook or Instagram find me follow me do you share your, your exciting journey when, when you do yeah so I mean like yeah so if I'm doing something in the lab or dissecting strange animals or pulling out big worms <laughs> normally it goes on there or if it's like good news stories like wow. I think today's post was about guinea worms so that we're down to 25 cases from 3.5 million cases mm. in the 80s is like a stunning achievement in making people's lives better yeah. mm. so that kind of stuff or just weird stuff about zombie sex beetles <laughs> which so is awesome yeah, yeah. <laughs> You yeah, make yeah. whatever you, you guys do sound really, really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> I don't know if it's <laughs> as interesting, but you make whatever you guys do sound super fucking yeah. interesting. Yeah. Well, At the very least, you've rebranded. You've rebranded. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. They're definitely more interesting than pandas. If anybody <laughs> takes anything away from this conversation, yeah. fuck pandas. <laughs> <laughs> That's my... Fuck pandas. Yep. Fuck pandas. Thank you for your time, Mackenzie. Very Thank well. You. Thank very you for much. listening. See you guys. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and feel inspired. Don't forget to keep posted for the next one. And if you really liked what you got, give us a follow.